factory as well. Mm-hmm. But you provide, oh, this was a really strong sausage. <laughs> um, but if you were to, to get that kind of compute resources, you would be able to basically make a cloud that researchers outside of KB could get in and use the data in, in some way. Yeah, for uh, as of now, uh, we have to prioritize our own, own models. Yeah. So it's uh, the really big models uh, that we build on KB data is uh, sort of, uh, it's KB lab who sort of govern that com- completely. Yeah. And it would be interesting to open up um, ways for others to use the data as well and to compete with us, I think, mm-hmm. sort of level so, the field a bit. So you saw this call and um, you thought this could be, since you are providing basically a research infrastructure, that's what you mm-hmm. want to do, Yeah. right? And, and then you tried to apply, or what happened then when you... Yeah, so we started to write the application, and we, so we had a really good layup, and we, you know, we started to work with the, uh, yeah, with the abstract nerfing, and, and, and we had uh, recruited a board for this, mm. uh, and you know, with all the things that comes along with that, it should mm. be you know, uh, a, a nice um, decomposition of gender, et cetera, so, yeah. and competences and everything. So everything was on a roll. And then we get the sort of signals from one or two of the suggested board members. Mm-hmm. Have you really talked to the National Research Council? Mm-hmm. Uh, we think that this might be the wrong call for you guys. Oh. So we contacted uh, the council and yes, we were sort of, no, only universities can apply for this. And <laughs> we didn't say anywhere. So Couldn't you do that in tandem or in collaboration with some research or some university, you think? Or? I think the uh, state did sort of... Um, Mm, ambition from the research council, which was not stated in the call, mm. uh, is that it should be only one computational center in Sweden. Really? Yeah, at least for this call. So it should be centralized. Uh, mm. And it should uh, replace the old uh, Swedish national infrastructure for computation SNIC. SNIC, yeah. Uh, so they sort of phasing out SNIC and this should come instead. So uh, there, there, was an, there was an agenda here that was quite, if you knew it, it was quite obvious. Yes. But you didn't know that bottom line agenda. We didn't know it. And this sort of, I was, I knew that it was a call for a national center as well. I just didn't understand that it was this call because it wasn't obvious from the call. So, um, and it, it was also a bit more HPC focused then, or was it more AI focused or? Uh, the national call in, yeah, it was HPC. Yeah. Because SNCC, I mean, it's one, of course. Yeah. And they have a number of, Machines, both in in KTH and Shalmash yeah. and Linköping, etc. Yeah. But was the idea to to replace it or to amend to it or uh, add to it? Basically, or? to build a second Berzelius pod. Right. Okay. So, and when I look at the size of the call, um, as far as I can sort of appreciate that, in terms of size, it was a pod of the same size as Berzelius, so kind of double that. Oh, but Berzelius, oh, for people that don't know, it's, it's a big um, Wallenberg-funded yeah. cluster in Linköping, and it has it's still 60 DDX machine, like 480 A100s, right? Yeah, I think it's like something like that, yes. Like 300 so it's, million. So it's in a Euro- European perspective, that's not very big anymore. Yeah. Um, and then there will be an equal, equally large machine mm-hmm. to put next to it or somewhere else. Um so, I mean, that's great, but I think also there is a need for something between the local sort of many organizations now have a DGX in their cellar somewhere, you know, so, uh, somewhere between that. I don't have it in the, my cellar. Yet. <laughs> I would love what? to have it in my cellar. 
<laughs> you should. No. Uh, some, something between that, having one or two machines and having 60 machines, we need something close to data, you know, yeah. also to be able to prepare for the super large project to do the experiments, uh, you know, to do your groundwork properly uh, and then take your stuff to have to uh, not, so you don't have to use so many hours on the really big pods, basically. Yeah. Um, but okay, so so then when you found this out, did you did you just abandon the whole application or did you submit it anyway? Or what was no, I, there wasn't. There's no idea to submitting it to the research council, uh, but the application is still sort of uh, half baked. So we will try to pitch it to other funders, hmm? EU or EU, and also perhaps the Swedish uh, Innovation Agency, was Vinova. Vinova, mm-hmm. yes. Okay, uh, awesome. And I haven't talked to them, so th- this is the first time they hear about this. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Vinova. I like uh, <laughs> this is the scoop channel. <laughs> I mean, we we have, want your money. Please. We had this, at least one. Or, uh, we had two people from Vinova that's yes. on the podcast. Right? Yeah. I think it's two people. Yeah. Uh-huh. I hope they listen. Yes. So we had this is a really good, strong case. It would really sort of, um, you would really get the good leverage on the uh, data resources that we have and the competence that we have at the at the library. But mm-hmm. if I, if I try to follow now, is, is one of the topics here really that we need to have compute close to the data and close to the ex- competences around that data? And yeah. sometimes, yes, we can have one big central pod, yes. but not necessarily would that central pod have the competences or the data even. Is yes. that some sort of a point of, of yeah. in case here? I think we have to have, from a national perspective and from a EU perspective, we have to have different levels of computing sort of um, resources. Mm. Uh, and it's important to have a really big pod nationally that we can do really big, super uh, big models on. Um, but you re- would like them to be quite the stuff that goes onto the central one should be a little bit baked or should, you know, you should have Yeah, you want to prepare before you yeah. sort of take that kind of resources, uh, when, before you use that kind of resources because uh, it's super expensive. Uh, so if you don't use your own money, you're using someone else's money. So uh, it's a good thing to be prepared. Uh, and, one and here then is a gap yeah. between the smaller... Yes, cent- exactly. So this should be some, you know, mid-size. Uh, and still, I think eight or ten... DDX machines, that would be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a, it's a considerable, yeah, you could do stuff with that. But what do you think about, you know, the, the approach for Sweden then in general? If we think about, uh, I guess, the, the public sector to start with, yeah. or perhaps, you know, private sector as well. Yeah. That there's been, you know, you said yourself, you know, uh, companies are starting to buy their own DDX machines mm-hmm. or some at least computational power. <laughs> Do you think that's the right way to proceed or should we really start to collaborate in some way, have some kind of centralized national center for you know, AI compute or, I mean, we have it in, to some extent. Yeah, we have it to some extent. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I see some of the DDXs around Sweden that are not used, mm. you know, uh, they get this resource. They heard that they, they need this resource and then they don't really have the competence to sort of, uh, to actually paralyze. Because uh, I think if we speak about I mean, you as, as KB, of course, um, can't move the data outside of the organization without having, you know, some, the proper legal work yeah. work in place. But I think that's the same. I mean, I remember from Spotify, mm-hmm. there is no way you can move the data outside no, of the organization. Exactly. Yeah. 
I mean, even if in the cloud, you have to be an organization that owns those yes. machines, even in the cloud. So yeah, moving yeah. the data outside is, is completely no-no. Yeah, it's very complicated. But isn't, um, that really speaks for, um, okay, we have a central machines and all that, but then they kind of need to build up different domains where you can have these different centers where you can organize, you can have the competences, and you can have the legal uh, so I, I guess, you know, what we wanted to do is, I mean, since we can use the cloud, at least the commercial companies have gotten some way on that. I think some public sector potentially also is starting to use private cloud or public mm. clouds as well. But what we're lacking is, you know, imagine if we had a Swedish cloud mm. where you still can have a very secured with encryption, etc., way to move the data there and, and process it yeah. without leaving the organization in some yes. way. Uh, as you can do on Google and Amazon and, uh, and Azure, et cetera. Yeah. That would be a nice solution, right? Yeah. Then you could even move KB data onto that so-called yes. cloud yeah. and, and a lot of things would so be you, solved. But you, you, what you're talking about is a Swedish cloud where, where essentially then you can have several different domains or... I mean, just as Google does it, you know, they basically have an organization yeah. and within yeah. organization, they have projects and yeah. within, you know, you can't really move data with, it, with between projects easily. Um, everything is co co encrypted differently and then it's really high security. But, the cold, blah, blah, blah. but there, there's one huge data center, of course, uh, you know, the infra is not yeah. the problem anymore. Uh, yeah, but I think Google Research Cloud and, and uh, Colab, basically, I think that's a fantastic uh, mm. infrastructure they built. And the problem is, of course, that since it's an American company, ultimately, American authorities have the right to access data if they yes. really want to. So yeah. that's the that's the big sort of, uh, okay. yeah, we, we can't get around that from a European perspective. So, uh, But the way they built that, that, that is something to look into because it's really, really, I mean, it's convenient I mean, like it's, and easy to use and everything. So, And maybe, so, so the fundamental idea how to do it is not that novel anymore. It's solved, yeah. right? Yeah. But, but then we need to bring it home to our European context or, or even Swedish context. Yeah. Uh, and there is a problem because the HPC environment in Europe where the European Commission uh, and the member states are putting a, a lot of money into this to build uh, these uh, computational pods like everywhere. Mm. Uh, they can't really compete with Amazon and Google because they're not allowed to. So they're sort of, um, I don't think they can have solutions in the exact same way mm. and sell it to private companies because they, then they will destroy the market. But uh, this is actually similar to, you know, we speak about the so-called AI divide a lot, divide a lot and, and one of the parts of that is we have these kind of big companies, they all have their own cloud solutions, you know, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, etc. has their own clouds, and the same in China, you have Alibaba and Baidu, etc. They all have their clouds that are really um, powerful, um, but we don't have a single you know, European or Swedish cloud that mm. is even close to the same kind of size no. in scale or in functionality. Yeah. That and is guess, a problem. It is a big problem, right? Yeah. It is. Well, why do you think problem. there is? Why don't we have a private company that's built know. up a cloud solution that is similar, at least in function in some yeah. way? Because when the sort of GDPR, uh, the effects of GDPR uh, legislation, when that sort of hit the European countries, then that's when the, as I understand it, the European Commission started to build the HPC. Mm. Uh, and it was they were sort of in a hurry and sort of sort of mm. build computers everywhere. And that was a good thing because, I mean, we can use them, but they haven't really... Um, I think there is... Um, I don't know. I think it's... Uh, 
Um, the problem, I think, is that we should have a. It should be a private company doing this in right. Europe. Why? Because I don't think the authorities can really compete with the private companies. I think they're not basically not allowed to. Can't really have uh, member states and the European Commission dumping the market, as it were. Well, probably not the best way, way or company to build it either. Mm. If the EU Commission is leading yeah, no, a but technical but you, solution. But you, so I, I agree with that. But but still. EU and, and the governmental sort of the money we have, we could yeah. help um, facilitate or uh, grease the mm-hmm. wheels, so to speak, on making that happen. Mm-hmm. We, we could basically make that opportunity. We could even have calls that is pushing in this direction. Yeah. And when you are successful with this call, eventually, I mean, like even Vinova, and we are doing calls in order to bring up AI startups. Mm-hmm. Why, why don't we do a real call for an AI yeah. scale-up? Yeah. Uh, we don't really have the big uh, sort of uh, AI service uh, providers like or companies like Google. We have Spotify. Mm-hmm. And what else but do we have? It's a different European magnitude than... Yeah. Uh, so I think you need to... I mean, all the you know US and, um, and Chinese ones, they started off just finding a way to scale their business and yeah. make a shitload of money. And then yeah. later they created the cloud. Yeah. Which then they could branch out in a new business model yeah. based on the, their cloud. I mean, like yeah. Amazon is, is start, a good example. I think it's hard to start in the other way, to start with a cloud and hope and make that successful yeah. without first having a super successful yeah. scalable I mean, business. And, and why is that? Because I think you think you're right, but let, let's bring that home. Why, why is the business angle needed first before, so you don't only build infrastructure? It's such a long-term investment, I think, to actually have a cloud yeah. that works properly. And, yeah. and if they build the business first, they actually use and have to to scale up their business, they have to build an internal cloud. Yeah. And, 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 and then they can simply take that internal cloud and start to make it public. Yeah. They don't have to build the public cloud from scratch. But they I, already have it internally. I think yeah. and that, to, to have a real case and a real business, that ultimately drives the true usability. I think that's another angle here. Like we say it all, all, all the time now, you know, in the, the, the best practices in innovation or creating new services. Get yourself your beta customers super early so you know what, what you're cooking in the lab has, is valid and useful in reality. So I think that angle, to have a real business, how do we want that to work in order for this to make sense? Yeah. I, I think going out of the theoretical lab, so to speak, it, it, it tests your idea in a completely different way. I yeah. think that's a good angle as well, why we need the business first. Well, so still, I think it's, it's strong to start with the cloud as a first business that you have yeah if you can i mean there is a if you there is a case of course for uh, european authorities uh, or the commission even to build such a cloud uh, mm. they're the one with the sort of financial muscles to pull it off uh, and, and if then what clouds do exist well we have private cloud provider in sweden who are very much focused then on high security or you know uh, ver- you know uh, virtual private clouds or whatever. So they have a very niched angle where, you know, or, or public data, for instance, right? So these players are coming up, but they're on a very small scale in comparison. Which one are you thinking? Yeah. I'm not sure which one you mean. Oh, I can't remember their names, but there, there's a couple of providers <laughs> yeah. uh, out there. But I think the scale is a problem. Banhof, I don't know. That's, that's an ISP. They're an ISP, right? But there is a couple of 
I, I forget the names. But if I mean, you can even take like AI Sweden. I mean, they they had the idea of the data factory, mm-hmm. which in, in short is some kind of cloud service that allows companies to use their computational resources. Mm-hmm. But the scale of that is is they have like a single DDX machine or something. And of course, that's not anywhere near. Yeah. Um, so, 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 so Google uh, Swedish private cloud, Swe- Swedish private cloud, uh, like as an ex- used to mm. Google that, see what happens, what comes up. But are you thinking virtual private networks or what are you thinking about? Yeah. Because all the big, you know, public cloud providers also have private cloud offerings, basically saying you can, we can provide our software on your private machines, so yes. to speak. Yeah. So that exists, but there are many many business solutions that I've seen in Sweden where they sell something, a product or whatever, a model or an application, where they use uh, Google Research Cloud. Yeah, uh, and, and then, sure, then, a lot. Yeah, and then becomes a problem, especially for um, uh, governmental agencies and municipalities that yeah. they can't do that. Yeah, so. true. Awesome. Yeah, interesting topic. And I'm sure we get back to this shortly as well. But uh, let's start with welcoming you here, Lowe Börjesson. It's a, a true pleasure to have you here. And uh, we've known each other, I'm not sure for how many years, but a number of years at least. And uh, yeah, we had a number of very, I think, interesting discussions, but also collaborations from Peltarion and other companies. And I mean, uh, I think, you know, also the it's rare to find someone that actually is so prominent in the small sphere of AI expert, so to speak, that also know, sorry to say, a lot of technical details and not sorry for all the others, if you see what I mean. What I'm saying is it's nice to to talk to someone that do understand the technical details of how to do large scale language model training and different models, et cetera, pros and cons with those. And I've very much enjoyed all the discussions we had about that throughout the years. And he also was like a finalist for the AI suite of the year. Um, that is an awesome thing, of course. And I think that's very well deserved given all the uh, huge positive impact I think KB Lab have had on actually using AI for Swedish text. Mm. If we hadn't had that, I think we would be very far behind compared to where we are today. And, um, and and that's a super important thing for, for Sweden, simply. So very well deserved and, and great to have you here, Lova. Thank you, Anderson. It's great to be here. So, Should we start with uh, just a sh- short introduction to, to who you are? H- how would you describe yourself? Who is Lova Barrison? Yeah, so <coughs> I'm the head of the KB Lab, which is a data lab at the Swedish National Library of Sweden. Mm-hmm. And it's a research infrastructure we provide the uh, research with the access to uh, KB data, data from the National Library. Uh, KB, I should say, is the short for the Swedish National Library. It is a national library, but it has royal sort of history. So it's in Swedish. It's yeah, what is that kind of connection to the royal? Well, uh, the library's collections, uh, the origin of them are the private collections of the Vasa family ah, I see. in the 16th century. Uh, and then during the 17th century, when the sort of Swedish unit state uh, uh, was organized, we had the first deposit loss. So everything printed in Sweden, uh, one copy needed to go to the library. So, so for how many hundreds of years has, has that law been in 
1670-something-something. Uh, something. So, so essentially, every single thing printed in Sweden, mm -hmm. one copy should be in the... Yes. And that includes uh, uh, books, newspapers, what we call ephemera, which is commercial leaflets, etc. Even commercial uh, leaflets? Yes. Uh, any, any convolute for a CD or a, um, a record or anything like that. Uh, and step by step, this, the postal law has been extended. So now we uh, collect also everything uh, web unique. So if something is born digital and doesn't exist in another context, uh, it also needs to be deposited to the library. From a Swe any Swedish website? Yes. Um, so you are scraping the Swedish web? No, they are required to send to us. If you publish something online, uh, you're required to send to us. So if I'm as a small company? Yeah. Yeah, so there's um, there's a whole thing about that also to sort of have people actually sending stuff to us and and uh, versus scraping. We also do scraping, of course. But uh, the good thing with the deposit laws is that we get behind all the paywalls, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, also computer games, uh, all radio broadcast, TV broadcast, etc. So we have Swedish radio as well. well. Yes. So you have text, of course, mm -hmm. but also video. Yes. And yeah. audio. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and the web, yeah. So well, what size are we talking about here? Uh, How for the library, uh, for the library as a whole, I think it's more than twenty-five petabytes of data. Mm -hmm. That with text, video, and audio, yeah, and images. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a lot of data, uh, and uh, it's a new situation also for the library because it used to be books and ephemera, and that's big enough. Ephemera is everyday prints, um, but now it's sort of a sea of data. So that's also one of the libraries, uh, one of the labs, my labs, uh, sort of, uh, can we use the abilities and, and, and the, um, the things that you can do with transformer models and other models to, uh, to describe the collections. And before you get into all of that, uh, I mean, the deposit laws or the click log, I guess it's called mm -hmm. in Swedish, right? Yes. How did they, you know, just store that? I guess they had like papers and stuff and, and tapes or something in the beginning before it was digitalized or how did they just store it? Yeah, well, any format you can think of historically, we have them, you mm. know. So we have um, stuff that is on um, uh, pergaments you know, uh, and uh, then on paper, etc. And then we have every technical sort of mm. <laughs> stage in history during the uh, 20th century, we have them. So there are CDs and there are tapes. Etc. Are you required to have like weights to play all old uh, formats? <coughs> so we have uh, experts at the library who uh, swipe the internet and uh, try to vacuum the internet for parts for old machines <laughs> to be able to digitize, you know, very <laughs> weird uh, Betamax, etc. Yeah, you know? exactly. And, um, and if I go all the way back to pergaments, yes, are we digitizing copies of that as uh, well? Yeah, so we're behind on digitization. Uh, we will always be. Uh, <laughs> but the oldest items in the collections, I think, is about a thousand years old or so. So the collections span more than thousand years. Um, uh, what an amazing uh, treasure. Yeah, it's an amazing treasure. Um, but so yes, the, the, the digitization, especially of the old rare stuff, that's research driven. So it gets digitized when someone uh, managed to not only apply for money, but also getting money to digitize it. And then we have 
as part of their, they want to use it for some research and then yes. you, you digitize it yeah, uh, exactly. so you don't have to use the old fragment. Exactly. How do you keep that data safe? If we're just speaking about the digital data, mm-hmm. I guess, you know, if, if some kind of fire were to happen or if a KB were yeah. to be bombed, yeah. then I guess we lose a lot of stuff. Yeah, right? so there is uh, actually um, another governmental agency who has the responsibility for uh, the so-called I'm going to say Swedish word now, uh, bortforskningsansvar. Uh, ah, okay. Uh, the sort of taking stuff out of their responsibility, uh, mm-hmm. if that could be a term. Um, so uh, there is a plan for that, a continuous plan for what happens if you get bombed. But uh, if you go to the digital data, everything is uh, you know, two server holes, there's two copies of everything, right. and then there's a tape, copy on a tape. Uh, where you actually, to destroy that, that data, you need to do it physically, basically. You can do it. Mm. Uh, so, and so the perspective separate, of the yeah. two, two separate data centers that are not physically close is, yeah. is trying to keep yeah. it safe. Okay, mm. uh, and then also a copy on tape in the end, so mm. to speak. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, and um, where were I? Well, I, I'm an awesome. And um, but before we get more into KB, I think that's interesting and specifically, you know, what is KB Lab and what is their mission yeah. and what mm-hmm. how did it, how did it get started and everything? Mm-hmm. That would be really fun to hear. But perhaps before, what did you do before you got started at KB? Yeah, my dark <laughs> dark history. <laughs> no, so I I I, uh, I did a postdoc and was a researcher at Stanford University. Mm-hmm. Um, Computational Social Science Lab. So academically, I would, you know, label myself as some kind of sociologist. Uh, my background is uh, so Stockholm School of Economics, which is my alma mater. Yeah. Uh, so I have a um, sociology, a or was it more economical kind of background? What was your focus? <laughs> you were saying. So when I studied business, I, I my major was in organization theory, which is. Uh, uh, a variety of sociology, I would say. So at Stanford, I did uh, what is called uh, sociology of knowledge, mm-hmm. which is how do it, ideas appear, who leads and lag in that process, etc. Uh, mm-hmm. Which are the ideas are attractive and can boost your career, not in a, in a scientific environment. So we were looking into large uh, corpora texts, scientific mm-hmm. texts, and trying to model latent topics, etc., mm-hmm. to relate them to different covariates. Uh, so it was more computational as well at that point. So you used computational yeah. techniques at least to yeah. understand that. Yeah, and ML techniques like uh, typically uh, topic modeling. Yeah. And, and can you just speak about Stanford? I mean, it's, it's one of the most renowned universities that we have. How would you describe what Stanford is or and, and potentially different from other universities? Yeah. Well, so it's in California. Enough <laughs> 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 said. <laughs> um, it's um, it's. I, I think the spirit of Stanford University is the same as the uh, the Free uh, University of Berlin, uh, which I think now is called Humboldt University. I'm not yes. sure, but uh, I may confuse the names here. But uh, which was Berlin, yeah, so the idea is sort of, it was a break with the traditional English universities, uh, more freer, one step away from the church, uh, church etc. Right. Uh, sort of emphasizing uh, the freedom of thought, basically. Um, uh, and, uh, and I think in the um, sort of um, 
maxima of Stanford University is where the, uh, the free winds flow or something like that mm. in German also. So they're sort of very right. clear. They're sort of speaking right. with the, uh, Humboldt ideas. Right. Uh, mm. So um, and it was started um, by some of the uh, railway titans uh, of early uh, America. Mm. Um, sort of building, they first they wanted to be a department to Harvard. Mm. So they pitched this idea to Harvard and they were kept in the waiting room a little bit too long. So when once they were admitted, they just said, hello, we're going to start a new university. And <laughs> basically, can I say fuck off? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 It's enough to work, you can say whatever. Yeah, okay, that's good. Mm. Uh, so they started their own university. Uh, and this was, I mean, the outbacks back mm. then, you know. What and year was this approximately? 1891. Oh, you know the exact year. Yes. Cool. Uh, so it's a young university. Mm. Uh, and it's built uh, along the road which the Spaniards used when they were colonizing California. Mm. Uh, Camino Real. Real. Uh, so it's built like a Spanish fortress. Mm -hmm. uh, or a Spanish convent mm. slash fortress. Um, why did it become so popular? You think? You know, why? Yeah, have they been good able question. to attract you know so great researchers? Yeah, I don't know. I think the war was the turning point for the American Academy mm -hmm. uh, in large, where um, were actually the Nazi overtaking Germany. Germany was the foremost uh, research academic sort of research country before the Nazi overtake, yeah. uh, and um, when uh, researchers started to uh, uh, flee. Germany, they ended up mostly in the U.S. Right. For example, Einstein in Princeton, etc. Right. Uh, so uh, that was a boost for American sort of academic life in general. Uh, and then California, I don't know. This this weird sort of mix of academic excellence and industrial entrepreneurship. Because Silicon Valley wasn't a thing at that time, of course. Right? No, no, it wasn't. But I mean, there's an old Bond movie, I think, where they're trying to yeah. drown the whole valley, the, the, the Silicon the, Valley. Okay. Do you remember, can you say which Bond movie it is? I can. A no. View to a Kill. A View to a Kill, okay. okay. And uh, Max Sorin, the Bond villain, ah, he nice. has a plan to flood uh, Silicon Valley and be the sole provider of... Uh, Chips, yeah. microchips. Yeah. That's the that's the essence of the view to kill. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, so Wonder. when you, yeah, when you first there, you sort of get the feeling that it's all very very superficial. It's all about you know uh, developing stuff and blah blah blah, and, and it has that side to it, but it's much more profound. I think it is really about the freedom of ideas and yeah. yeah. And you were very happy to to do the full PhD, and you thought, what was your thinking about academia at that time? So yeah, I did my PhD in Sweden, and so I did a postdoc over there. Uh, and I was, um, uh, for me, the sort of ambience or the feel to the Californian society, it, it uh, worked very well for me. You know, yeah. I liked it there. Uh, I think people were unpretentious and very open. Uh, people came from all around the world. Right. And uh, whatever you did, you could be... You know, hundred percent sure that it was someone else at the campus who did it better. <laughs> that was a certain. <laughs> well, I guess that's a good thing, I guess. Yeah. Um, um, but what do you think about academia in general? I mean, uh, at that time, did you have plans to stay? I mean, you did a yeah. postdoc, so you yeah. have to have some thought that yeah. academia is something for you. Yeah, I had all the sort of possibilities to stay in academia, and uh, you know, by st standard sort of 
the standard outcome of doing a postdoc in uh, Stanford is to become at least an associate professor. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, but there was something with publishing, this sort of publishing process that doesn't really click with my... Um, yeah. Uh, I lose interest mm. uh, when I knew the results. And we've spoken about this a couple of times in the past as well on this podcast, you know, the potential problem with academia and uh, we can at least see a brain drain happening right now where people are leaving universities for mm. tech giants or other private companies and perhaps public sector as well. Are you concerned with um, what's happening in academia? Do you think it's, do you think there has been a decline in some way? Do you think it can? I'm not back? sure if it's a decline, but I think that research outside academia has accelerated in some areas, right. at least in, especially in STEM, I think. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, artificial intelligence in particular, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. And that is a problem. Uh, and we see it in digital humanities, which we, a lot of researchers do that at the lab. Uh, and they're not really on par mm. with what we do in the industry, so to speak, mm. in terms of models and our understanding what you, you can do with these data sets. And I don't think they need to be on top of the sort of latest model at you know any given point in time. But what they're starting to lack now because they're sort of, when they're falling behind is the ability to have uh, uh, creative uh, ideas and to fantasize about what you can do because they're so far behind. So they're sort right. of not really in the, you can't really have them in the conversation. Yeah. And then it starts to become a problem that it's harder and harder to sort of, to close that gap. And that is a problem. Do you think we should um, spend more time as policymakers or politicians to try to reclaim the power that universities have had once? In I think one of the strengths of Stanford, if we get back to that a little bit, is to focus on data mm -hmm. uh, and what you can do with data. So that's sort of more emphasis on data uh, compared to uh, the model. theory. Theory. Mm -hmm. um, not that they don't do theory, but it's a different sort of. Um, <coughs> in AI, uh, you have to have sort of a deep understanding of data. Mm. And it's it's basically part of the algorithm. Mm. Um, and I think that understanding, there's a lack of that understanding in Sweden. Uh, and elaborate now, because I, I sense a deeper uh, meaning in understanding data. Do you, do you mean the contextual, you, what do you mean with understanding data? Uh, basically every aspects of data, uh, sort of understanding scale a little bit, uh, because when we talk big data now or big scale in terms of, for, for example, the Swedish National Library collections, the scale is, is sort of beyond what they can even imagine in many, many times, you know. Uh, so under, just understanding that this, uh, you will, if you want to engage in that kind of uh, massive amount of data, you encounter new problems uh, that will be analytical, even though it's just about size. Uh, just presenting data on a disk will take you hours, for example. So you have to approach it in a different way. Uh, also that you can see when you, you know, when you close in, uh, on a map, you close in and then you can see more and more details. So you can see different patterns when you close in. But the, the same is also true when you uh, zoom out, then you can see new patterns. And that's very true about data. So you can see 
latent structures that are completely hidden uh, on a smaller scale, they will appear on a larger scale and with stronger models, etc. And um, so, so what you're highlighting here is in Stanford, they have taken an interest and they are excelling in this fundamental deep understanding of data. Yes, I think so. And it's a it's a very vivid and more profound uh, scientific discussion around data than I think that many Europeans sort of understand. Uh, with many good exceptions, of course. I mean, many, most of the researchers at Stanford are not from the US, of course. I mean, that's also a thing uh, about but, California, it's sort of... But I, you saw, I understand. Why is this so important? Or why, if we are lacking this deeper understanding of data, what, what is it blocking? Um, it's what I would call the methodological game uh, or play that you have to have to sort of uh, expand your horizons and do, do new stuff uh, to be able to have a fantasy about that and think in terms of data um, to really um, move forward. You need to have that sort of... So uh, if I put words, uh, see if I understand it. I mean, like... Uh, the opportunity with data and what you can do with data and, mm. and how you understand this uh, opportunity landscape. Yep. If, if your vision is to narrow on data, you don't see how you can reinvent things as much. Yeah, and we see many researchers, when they come to us, kind of late in their applications for funding, etc. They, they have not typically, uh, they don't have a data scientist in the project. They think that we can think out the cool stuff we can do think about the stuff that we're going to do. And then we have some IT guy or data scientist in the end who's going to sort of do this. Uh, some little, some minion, you know, who's going to do the, the data stuff, as it were. And that doesn't really... Uh, I think data science has to be recognized as some sort of intellectual strand in its own right. Uh, and if you don't see that, then it's very, very hard to, to make use of it. But... The Sorry, this is profound because if I take it back to a, a business perspective, you know, what you're saying now is that when you are trying to develop something which has data and algorithms in it, you need to iterate back and forth between the domain problem, the business problem mm -hmm. and the data problem yes. to reimagining the process and you will come up with something else. If you're not doing it in that, you're essentially slapping data and AI on top of analog thinking. Yes. You're, so that's a very well uh, formulated. Thank you for <laughs> clarifying that for, for me and the listeners. Yes, that's exactly what's happening. So uh, and, and the, there's uh, the reasons for not doing it. I think there's, there's lack of knowledge, but there's also lack of will to do it, of course, because uh, there's a new sort of hierarchy of, of, of uh, different knowledge domains uh, where a lot of people don't want to see data science uh, being sort of important on a different level, in different contexts, uh, but also from data science scientists themselves, perhaps to be hesitant to sort of really engage in, for example, uh, a, a business problem or a, a problem, sociological research or whatever. Sort of. So it's a mutual... What, what do you process. think about, you know, Karpathy, you know, the person in charge of Tesla and their autopilot, he, he wrote something 
that said, let's see, he basically said, you know, AI, if you combine it with traditional software engineering, it will be like software 2.0, I think he called it. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if you heard it, but, but basically it's trying to say something that um, <clears throat> if you use, I mean, you can see data as a way to automate how the code should work. Mm -hmm. And by having algorithms, you can then, you know, using, for example, AI learn part of the software automatically. And that is like a traditional big shift from software 1.0, where mm -hmm. you have to hard code everything manually. Absolutely, yes. Do you think this is a good way to phrase it? Or uh, do you think it will be like basically natural in the future that if you build some piece of software, you need to use data to also in, you know, build up the functionality of that piece of software? Yeah. Yes, I think so. Mm -hmm. um, the typical case at the library is uh, metadata, which are descriptions right. of the, mm -hmm. uh, the collections. And traditionally, what librarians do is to uh, order the collections and structure them. So, uh, and this is made primarily for other librarians so they can find the books and lend them to someone who needs the book. So the librarians are themselves the super users, users of libraries. And the metadata sort of standards are built with that in mind. Uh, uh, but what we can do now is to, and the descriptions of the books they follow, you know, this is a, a novel, blah, 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 blah. And it could have certain topics, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. What we can do now is to automate this process and base the metadata on the content of the digital object. Mm -hmm. And then we can, first of all, we can have a completely new kind of, of metadata. For example, an image, it could be what kind of objects are in this image. Is it a cow? Mm -hmm. uh, is it a road or a boat or whatever? Uh, but it could also be more abstract terms. Is this uh, a painting or a photo? But it could also be sentiments. So that's one thing we can do metadata on a sort of completely new kinds of metadata. But also, uh, we don't really need to do it from the library perspective. We can have a framework for users to create temporal uh, metadata that we don't need to save. Like uh, personalized metadata? Or? For example, if you're interested in, in the collections of images, you can bring your own image and, right. and sort of, can I have everything that looks like this? Right. So or... Can I have everything with the logotype for a Swedish company? Uh, and yes, here they are. Or can I have every sad image? Uh, or can I have every text that has a uh, sentiment of this and that, or that is about this topic, you know, or have these entities, et cetera, et cetera. So basically and you're saying if we can, instead of having the manual process of having to define all the metadata, if we can automate that with software and, and algorithms, we can have a completely different way to produce the metadata and, and because, use. Yeah, metadata can be, could be something completely different because, I mean, the initial thought is, of course, can we automate the metadata, uh, applying metadata to the digital objects? Uh, and to some extent, yes, we can do that. But the real question is, why should we? Mm. No, we don't need to save this metadata. We can just right. have a framework to, for the users to create it. And that sort of flips the whole, what should I then do as a librarian? Mm -hmm. If I don't really control the descriptions of the objects anymore, but users can do that. So the only thing we have to keep track of is the identity of the digital object, and then we can describe it in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's a whole different sort of... Uh, because you're opening it up that 
as long as we can find it in different ways, search in it completely differently, then we open up uh, an uh, unlimited uh, view of how we can define things based on our imagination and based on a fundamental, a very singular purpose. Yeah. In a way that, you know, if you try to build a metadata structure that is sort of standardized, mm. it, it will not be as fluid no. ever. No, never. Uh, because if you think about research, we can never ever imagine all the weird research questions that people come up with. That's uh, a good example. For example, a typical research question that I'm actually interested to look into is uh, how often and to what uh, extent do uh, food chains uh, expose meat uh, on the first page of the commercial leaflets? Um, has that gone down? In sort of, uh, is, and is, is that a reflection of the uh, uh, trend of people it, eating more, uh, more vegans being around? Basically, uh, can you see that? Right. Um, we don't have metadata of, of that. Of course, there is no metadata standard in the world that would say, you know, amount meat, of meat, amount of meat on exactly. the first page. Please have that tag <laughs> exactly. And now that I come up with that idea, there is still a million other ideas that I haven't sort of even thought of. So it's better to sort of hand over the control over the metadata to the users. But that's, that's a complete, you're flipping it completely. Yes. Yes. And made possible, I guess, by you know, smart AI systems that yes. doesn't have to have hard-coded metadata, but can understand. The can content. understand yes. the core text, the core, con understanding the core content instead of uh, tagging the content. Yes. I guess it brings us back to KB Lab. Can you can you just talk a bit more? You know what happened when you? How did you get in contact with KB Lab, lab and, and how, how yeah. did you get started there? So I was hired to start a lab. This was in right. 2019, mm -hmm. um, and KB had recognized the rise of digital humanities and the need for a data lab because before the lab you could access the digital digital collections uh, object by object, mm -hmm. so you could go to the library. And look at the digitized newspaper page, and then on the, flip on the web page. page, or how do you do that? Or in their computers? Yeah, in their computers on site, okay. on premises. Yeah. Um, so there weren't, and there weren't. The library didn't have a concept of data set, mm. and the researchers wanted data sets. Uh, so that was the f sort of first task for the lab. Uh, we had two designated research projects. Why do you want to serve researchers, by the way? Can, can you just elaborate a bit more? What is the mission of KB and KB Lab? Yes. So uh, the KB has, in, in the basic instructions for the National Library as a whole, there are two parts. Uh, the first is to uh, uh, enhance the quality of Swedish research. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's one of the core missions yes. that they have. And our department is not the Department of Culture, but the Department of Education. Yeah. Right. Uh, so that, that's how we sort of sort. Uh, um, and we also have money actually from the culture department as well, but the, the sort of primary department is the um, Ministry of Education. Right. Uh, and the second part uh, of the library instruction is to uh, promote uh, a possibility positive development of the democratic society. Right. So these two sort of. And the library is very much geared to the first one to enhance the quality of Swedish research. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was a part of that, basically. How can we provide research within digital humanities to access the digital collections in, in, uh, in the form of data sets? Mm -hmm. uh, so that was the first thing we did. And when we started out, we didn't have 
tables or chairs or anything. And I, I spent a large part of that summer running around in the IT department <laughs> looking for, you know, <laughs> computers. Yeah, they, and basically, <laughs> basically a workplace, you mean like tables? Or, tables, but also computers and, you know. Uh, <laughs> really building a lab physically. <laughs> yeah, it was a kind of a garage product, you yeah, know. Yeah. So uh, cool. And we were two persons. Mm -hmm. uh, two, yeah, we had a product leader also, but it was, so it was me and the lead scientist at lab, Martin Monfdell. Mm -hmm. um, it was, it was a fun time. So, but then we started to build up the first sort of wave of infrastructure. Uh, we decided that we should, uh, we can, um, we can endure uh, stop in productions. So we can buy uh, hardware on a, we don't need professional ho hardware so we can buy faster, cheaper mm. stuff. Mm. Uh, and when they break down, we just replace it, you know. It's like big data era, you know, you buy uh, middle range hardware instead of supercomputers, high end. Yeah, stuff. exactly. And, and we didn't want the researchers to have to access it through uh, like a service system, but we wanted to have them full control of their own workstations. And to uh, so we just set up the Linux um, environment, and then they can install whatever uh, software they want. Uh, and we would help them to get the data sets up on their local website. And you were speaking about having a computer inside the on site, so to speak. Yes, on premises. On premises. Okay. Uh, so yeah. the research came physically to yes. KB, and yeah, the, the some of them are still there. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh. <laughs> they never want to leave. Uh, yeah. So that is a problem. Uh, and uh, a lot of researchers, uh, they can actually be upset about that. Why can I use the data outside the library, etc.? There are legal reasons for that, of course. Too. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and um, it's not that different from other kinds of research. If you think of an archaeologist, for example, uh, they have the digging site. And it's somewhere where people used to live in the Iron Age or whatever. They can't really move that around. It's, it is where it is. Mm -hmm. And this is the same. You have to go to, uh, to yeah, do okay. this on site. Yeah. Archaeological site. Yes. Oh. So what are the legal constraints here? Um, I mean, um, I guess we get into copyright issues or yeah. what are, can, can you just elaborate a bit more? Why are you not allowed to move the data outside of the KV? Yes. Uh, so there are three main sort of areas uh, of concern. Uh, the first one is copyright. Yeah. So KB doesn't own the collections or the copyright for them. So yep. other one, other, others have the copyrights. Right. And that's very, very difficult because typically, for example, an article in the paper, not even the publisher has the copyright to that, but the individual oh. author. Ah, I see. Uh, so it's very complicated to get license for digital objects or digital, digital collections in particular. Right. Uh, so that's always an issue. Yeah. Um, we can uh, buy group license. Uh, so th there, there are ways around it, but then again, the overhead very quickly sort of. Yeah. <laughs> it, you uh, mean you can buy like a group license from that publisher or something? To uh, there are uh, organizations who handle the group licenses. It's like in music with uh, yeah. Steam, basically. Yeah. yeah, very similar. Collective societies, yeah. basically, in yes. some way. Yes, exactly ah. like that. So, ah, okay. nice. um, which is both good and bad, but you know, um, because sometimes they <laughs> they claim to have. They want uh, us to pay for collections where there aren't really any practical copyrights that are active. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so copyright is number one. Um, number two is uh, GDPR, mm. yeah, so integrity reasons. And you may think, okay, everything at the library almost is published already. 
and mm. newspapers, for example. So how can that have GDPR uh, right. issues? Yeah. Uh, but there are interviews in the, in papers during the 1980s, for example, the famous author is talking about her kids having uh, wetting their beds, for example. And these people are now grown up and, you know, so they will have their whole childhood on display. So if you spread this stuff around again. But, but if it's, you know, but it's still, if it's already published and indexed or whatnot. It is, but it's a different, the scale of how it's spread is an issue. Mm-hmm. So it becomes an issue, especially if sort of accumulate. That, do you have content that is not publicly available as well? Yes. Uh, stuff that is uh, illegal to display, oh, okay. but we can throw it away. So that's the difference between an ordinary library. One of the central tasks of an ordinary library is to throw stuff away. Yeah. Uh, we never do that, not even with illegal content. Can you give an example? Illegal content, what does that mean? Uh, so this is material that is not accessible by the public. I want to stress that very clearly, but yeah. it could be child pornography. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that can only be accessed by the police. Right. Uh, that work with this, you know. Um, so they actually send content to you because of the law, etc. And it's I don't know the call, you know the the context of how that came into the collections. Yeah, um, I see. Yeah, that's a concern for sure. Um, okay, so GDPR then, I guess any kind of news article can contain personal information. Yes. yes, yes. And even though it's published, it's still not allowed for you yep. to republish it in some exactly, way. Right? Exactly. So it could always be a problem, especially if we accumulate it into data center, blah, blah, blah. Mm. There could also be a problem that if we accumulate stuff that could be... Um, uh, I mean, the collections are far and wide and old, so there are stuff that are racist or mm. homophobic, blah, blah, blah. And if you put that together in a data set, it sort of becomes problematic. It can be. so. Mm. Um, cool. So copyright, GDPR, you said the third thing, potentially. Yes, it's security. Security. Yeah. So the data, we have two security sort of issues at uh, the library. The first is we don't want data to get out of the library. And the other thing is that we don't want anything to get into the library that we don't control. And that has to do with the integrity of the collections. Uh, So for example, what did Stefan Levien actually say say on that interview, this and that date? We can't, there can't be any sort of, we have to be absolutely certain. Uh, about the digital object and the integrity of that, so we have to. So that is the, the big issue. We can't be, we can't really have stuff in the data that's not. Um, Are you concerned with someone being able to plant a ransomware and just delete the whole data set somehow? Uh, deletion, that's not a problem. I think a bigger problem would be to plant stuff, mm. and you can do that legally. I mean, yes, by if you publish something, we collect it. So. Mm. <laughs> um, so that's a problem, but also for data coming out, it could be a problem because then you could uh, train an algorithm to reproduce a Swedish newspaper, for example. So that's a perfect way to uh, um, make fake news, basically. So. Awesome. Uh, and I just want to stay a bit longer on, on the legal aspect because I think a lot of companies are so afraid about this and it's an important topic. But Okay, you can't move the data outside of, you know, outside of on-premise, so to speak. 
But then you can train models and, mm. and you share them publicly. Yeah. And, and you have done an awesome job, I must say, to share so many different models. And we can go through them later or at least some highlights of which models you do provide. But uh, you, I think you have created common license for those, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what's your thinking about models? Uh, is, there, is it completely safe to share models? Uh, I think 100% safety, we can't really achieve that. So, uh, I mean, the models do contain a vocabulary, mm. so, uh, and they do contain a statistical connection between the words and the vocabulary. Yeah. So there's, they're not empty. Yeah. Uh, but they don't really have knowledge about the world, you know. Yeah. Uh, so if I you were to be able to read and reverse engineer them somehow, I mean, I guess it's, it's a low probability, but... Yeah. It's not zero. Uh, I mean, the, the risk is not zero, but it's very, very low. Uh, but there are, there are coming, as you know, there are coming models that are of a size and has yeah. the cap capacity uh, to do stuff, generate text, etc., Mm. And models that we will not release under CC. Yeah. Um, and we should get back to that shortly. And uh, I guess for people that don't understand it, of course, it's GPT kind of models that we are thinking mm. about and other large scale models. Yeah. And, and but I'm super glad that you are able to publish, even though it's not zero you know, risk for publishing models, the positive value that they do provide is, of course, really, really good. Yeah. So really happy with that. Are you publishing any code as well, by the way? Yeah, uh, both code and some data sets that are not, that are completely open. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, uh, governmental investigations, SOUR, Statlige offentliga utredningar. When the, the government issues an investigation about something, that's a pretty Swedish phenomenon, I think. Mm -hmm. and, and a very sort of, from a, almost any perspectives uh, within humanities or uh, social sciences, very interesting data sets. So we can publish those uh, mm -hmm. openly. Also some training data sets. Um, um, yeah. who, who are using, who, who are your biggest target audience or users of your data sets? Uh, so from the beginning, we thought that when we were, I mean, the, the, the main uses of, of the lab would be scholars within digital humanities or, or closely related, so basically digital social sciences. Um, but then um, once we started to make models, uh, they are used in a different way because you can use the model without being on the library on premises. So they are used by in the industry mostly. Um, but ours sort of, we don't build the models for the industry, we build them for academia basically. But, and, and the core idea here, the core premise is, uh, is models around Swedish language. Yes, yes, built on the collections. So you can then basically imagine how many use cases can we have where we would like to be able to really understand Swedish text. Yes, and so the first month, I think, when we released our first language model, BERT, KB BERT. Uh, the KB yeah, language, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we had uh, 1,500 downloads or something. And we thought, okay, so this is the peak and now it's gonna sort of flatten out. And now uh, monthly we're between 30 and 40,000 downloads. So this has really been a, a successful in terms of people are realizing if I need a Swedish language model, like a bird based or something similar, yeah. this is the go-to 
yeah. resource in Sweden right now. Yes, it is. I think our KB BERT, the base BERT, is still the sort of uh, base model for the Swedish language. Uh, this are, is used to start. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have a BERT large, which is actually performing slightly uh, better, but in terms of efficiency of the models, that would be something interesting yes. to talk about that also, basically. But it's better, but it's much larger, so it's harder to use. Yes. Yeah. So um, I'm almost tempted to say size doesn't matter. But it does in some way, but yeah. not necessarily positive ways. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, like, is yeah. the is ultimate uh, efficiency, you know, the complexity of using it towards the use case you're doing it. Yes, with, of yes. course. Uh, mm. And I mean, internally, we we do not uh, we use sort of more basic models to do stuff when we want it to be you speed up. You know, mm. we can't use transformers all the time. Uh, Remember the sizes of these? So KB BERT, I guess, is 300 million something? Or? Uh, so the, the large BERT is 340 million. Yes. Could we unpack uh, what we're talking about when you're defining size for a language uh, model? So that's the number of artificial neurons in the network. Uh, so the models are built, uh, well, the artificial uh, neurons in a big network. And they're organized in something that I would, since I work in a library, I would say they're organized in something that would look like bookshelves <laughs> with increased complexity uh, from the sort That's of a nice input. Uh, metaphor, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah I like from, the in, from the input side. Uh, so, the, so the first uh, row of uh, bookshelves will be about something really basic about language. What is a letter? What is a word? What is a... And then it will be more and more complex. And in, in the end, you will have bookshelves about really complex stuff. I, I bet you this, I need to test. You needed to find a way and a metaphor to explain what the hell you were doing for your bosses yeah. <laughs> that are library people. Yeah, I mean, probably. Because <laughs> you, yeah. you said that story before. Okay. I'm or sure. I was guessing, I was guessing. No, I, I think that's true. I think it's true. Yeah. But it's, these metaphors, which we actually really need them. Yeah. And, you know, and typically we need metaphors that connects with whatever domain people are in. So yeah. it's interesting that you have the library metaphor here. <laughs> Should we go to the set of models that you have published yeah, and go. just go through let's, and, let's and, and just a very go. like brief overview of what they do? So mm. KB Bird, of course, is, is the, how would you describe KB Bird, perhaps? Uh, so that's a very sort of general language understanding model, uh, and the training objectives of that model. What what we learn it to do might sound mm, awkward almost. So we we train it by taking away a word, and and the model has to guess what word. Uh, Word we have taken away, and so it's like taking out a book and trying to use your library metaphor here some way. Yeah, but it it wants to understand uh, basically what the meaning is in some way, and and you take away some words from a book yeah. <laughs> a shelf, and then uh, it has to predict what it is in some yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. And then there's another training objective as well, which is sort of uh, which is the probable next sentence here. Mm. From, um, but from that training, uh, and the thing that Google did was also a very American thing to do, I think, is they, they just scaled everything up. You know, more data, bigger uh, networks, faster computers, etc. cetera. Uh, and kablam, you have a model that could perform on a, uh, on a completely new level. So size uh, matters, according to that, at least. Yeah, at least, at least. To some extent. When, when we started off with the model we had before. Mm -hmm. uh, and the models we had before, they were sort of glo so-called global vector models where every word had one vec context vector. So, okay, so this word has these neighbors typically, uh, but the, every word had only one vector. So, for example, the word cell, which could be 
a phone or a human cell or a cell that you live in in a prison or a, mm-hmm. uh, it they all had the same vector so that's or the global like thing. apple i think is a very common i think yeah. we used it a bit before is it yeah, so apple explain, the company or the fruits yeah so yeah. so explain so i understand are, are these different vectors when you say cell 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 Yeah, but the, the problem with the global models was that the word cell only had one vector. So, so you need to decide, is this a cell I'm living uh, in or is this a cell? So the strongest, most common vector ah. would sort of dominate. Okay. So you couldn't really, so the, it wasn't, really, yeah, these models performed very well, but they were also sort of crude in a way. Uh, and with the new transformers, you had a vector for every instance mm-hmm. instead. So... Um, so the what's context. an instance? What is instance context? Sentence. Yeah, yeah every, every time it appears, basically. Okay. Uh, which is very good because even words that sort of have a stable meaning, like the word man or woman, for example, you can see how the context changes over time. Mm. Um, yes. So the BERT model can't really do anything in itself. The cool thing about the model is that Taking training the the model takes a lot of time and data and resources etc. Once you have the model, you can fine tune it. And fine tuning is not computationally expensive, uh, not to the same extent at least. Then you can fine tune train it for a domain or a specific task. Mm-hmm. So you can fine tune it to, for example, the financial domain to understand financial language or the medical domain or whatever. Uh, And you can also fine tune it to do certain stuff. Find all the entities here, uh, all the names, uh, all the organizations, all the times, you know, uh, all the uh, objects, etc. Um, I don't understand, but it seems very pragmatic and useful, and not overcomplicating things. That we have a, a basic model, yeah, and then basically we, like a framework, yeah. and then now and. To try to make that perfect and all encompassing is really hard, but even a quite basic model now, I now take it with a specific narrow use case. Yes, and now I fine tune it, and it can be really, really performant in 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 a frame. Yes, which is good because then others, and that's why it's infrastructure from my perspective that we provide the model, and then other others can fine tune it, mm. and they can fine tune it to do whatever. So we can fine tune it to classify. Uh, whatever text flow you have, basically. I mean, awesome. And then we have Bert, and you can use it for so many different tasks that yeah. you can fine tune it on, and you can yeah. tune it for your own data. But using a really small amount of data for a very large model, and in some mm. rather strange way, it still yeah. works to train it on a small yeah. amount of data for whatever use case you have. Yeah. It sounds efficient in both in terms of uh, in, in many aspects, I guess. Yeah. To me. Yeah, it's fantastic. So what you basically do is that you unlock the network a little bit and allow the fine tuning to sort of. Uh, and and what the point is, to separate the fine tuning to the context and the domain, um, seems like a very scalable way of thinking about this. Yeah. Or it, re, uh, you know the reuse. Yeah, it has become an old paradigm. The sort of the, it's called transferred learning. So you have to sort of mm. the basic language understanding, which is in the model, and you have the fine, which is. Similar to human language yeah. understanding, you have a basic language understanding, and, and then, then you're, you go into uh, your field. Yeah, you go into your field, and then you find yourself in a new field, and it will take a certain fine tuning to sort of get the hang of things in that yeah. new field. Makes sense. Yeah. Cool. Should we mention some other language models that you have produced besides yeah. the vanilla bird? The vanilla bird. Yeah. So then the first next model we built after that was an Electra, uh, mm. which is. 
And basically, the final product, so to speak, in terms of model, is very similar. Uh, but the training objective is different. So the model on the same amount of data, is, it's more efficient because it sees more data during the training. Um, that didn't really work out. So that's also interesting to share, I think. Um, what, what was the training objective or what was the difference? Uh, the training objective for an Electra is to, uh, it will have a, a small generator that will generate artificial text. And the training objective is for the model to determine this is uh, original text and this is machine made. Oh, so it's a completely different uh, question. Yeah, completely different question. And why? Uh, and what is the interesting with this question? The first question I really, am, you know, it's basic. Why is uh, this question interesting? Uh, it it learns to uh, identify and understand uh, natural language. Okay. I guess it would be fair to say it's one of the you know take advantage of one of the popular techniques in AI, which is called oh. generative adversarial networks, yeah. and tries to apply that for understanding text specifically. Mm. And so, why do we want that? Well, in this particular case, you get better use of data, I would say. And then you have some other models as well. Uh, yeah. I'm actually not a big fan of Electra, but no, it's not, it, that's my subjective. Okay, oh, that's interesting. It bombed a little bit. I f there was mm. something in the training that we didn't get right. Yeah. So it works, but it doesn't work really that well. Yeah. Um, Albert yeah, as well, right? Yeah, and uh, we wanted to build a smaller model. So Albert was a natural way to go. Uh, what do you mean smaller? In terms of uh, number of parameters and how much memory would be, so you have to use to actually use the model. So even a more efficient model to be able to embed it in in other cases, or why? Uh, yeah, for sort of low resource users. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's it's simply you know easier to to make use of because you don't need a as big GPU and it's faster to run. Yeah. So you, you basically, okay, how can we make a model that you can or maybe even run on a normal workstation? Yeah, basically, BERT, you can find it on a normal workstation if you have a good GPU on it. But but this is, we were sort of thinking about the PhD students oh, yeah. for the little funding. Mm -hmm. you know? So little funding PhD student gets something so they can play around with without, they don't have the real. Yeah. And I, I like some, that idea. Um, the garage model. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Um, but I think the next big, st so we have built a bigger BERT, and that's basically the same, but bigger, better, uh, but harder to use. Um, uh, then we have also built a sentence BERT, which I think is kind of interesting, which is so interesting. Um, the basic embedding, uh, <coughs> the, the basic unit of the BERT vanilla model is the word and the embedding of the word. Uh, the sentence model is uh, uh, the basic sort of unit is the sentence and the embedding of the sentence, uh, which, thanks, um, which make the model better that comparing text, longer text, etc. And when does this come into play? Anytime you want to compare text, which is like a gazillion use cases. It was actually one of the most popular use cases that we had during the Peltorium time, you know, just being able to search through text. Imagine yeah. like a really smart Google search functionality. Yeah. Just saying, I want to find a piece of text that has something to do with Henrik getting drunk. Or yeah. sorry, uh, <laughs> Henrik uh, having fun. <laughs> and uh, then we just write the words, you know, and you don't have to write the exact words, but you have to have the meaning this, of, this of the words. The meaning of the, the, the intent. And, and the, the intent. whole context, you know, so it shouldn't be per word as the traditional word to vec or glove kind of thing was. Yeah. But instead, really having the full sentence or the full piece of text and understanding what you actually were, that Henrik 
yeah. and happy together in some way. Drinking just, beer. And just finding that throughout, you know, tens of thousands of books or whatever. Yeah. And, and normal Bert did not work well at all. No. But, that in but some this is so important the way you now storytell around uh, this because now I'm you having fun. Uh, no, yeah, I mean, a lot of fun, but, but this, now you bro, now I am a sentence bird. Okay. Sounds really cool. And you can do this. Okay. Still blank, still yeah. blank. And then when you do this storytelling, mm -hmm. it makes total sense. Yeah. yeah. No, but so that was, um, an important model, I think. And we, we can also use it uh, a few months ago, there came this, um, it wasn't a new model, but it was a new application. So post modeling, putting it on top of a BERT model, which is called BERT topic, which is making the output look like a topic model, but with the power of a transformer model, basically. And, and that builds on if to do that, you have to have a sentence uh, model. Uh, we, and we had one laying around in the lab, luckily. <laughs> so, um, we have um, the model laying around in the lab. Um, I, got, I got another picture in my head when I had a model laying around in the lab, by the way. <laughs> you're thinking about uh, non-digital fuck stuff, I think. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. So I know I do. Uh, Sorry, that was a bad. <laughs> uh, no, which is really good because that's a, uh, in the industry topic, I don't really know, but I think the interest for topic modeling is not that big in the industry. I think it's more of a research thing. A lot of uh, scholars in digital humanities, and they do this for various research reasons. So they want to have a, a, a topic model. Topic modeling is uh, tiresome, and you know the, the, the data wrangling and text cleaning and iterations you have to do. It's just staggering. So doing transformer style, it's very little code, and a lot of this sort of. Uh, pre-cleaning, uh, stop list, all that crap. You just get rid of that and the model just takes care of it. Yeah. Boom. I would like to ask a question, but, uh, but uh, you can um, uh, allow it or park it. Uh, the simple question is, uh, how do you go about, what's the process of, of building a model? Because we are now, we are now defining three or four different models. Yeah. And should, no. should we park? I mean, it is a great question, Henrik. And, uh, and I think, I, especially I, when it comes to larger models, which, yeah. you, you know, well, what's the orders. process here or how, you know, but because should we take that a bit later then? Because please, I think that, that's why I was yeah. asking you yeah. to allow it. I mean, it, it is a great question. Yeah. And especially for, I think, Luve, who has done this on a scale that very few other people have done. Exactly. So that's, a, uh, I write it down here and, um, how to train large language. No, 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 no. You're narrowing it, my question down. Yeah, how to go about, what's the process here? You know, how do you come up with it? What do you need to do? You yeah. know, what are the key steps? And training is one step, I argue. Mm -hmm. And then what, uh, you know. Everything about training model, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but cool. Uh, but so let's, let's move let's, on on models, yeah. Yes. So the sentence model, uh, which is really good in itself, but also to do other stuff, uh, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, many use cases are linked to the sentence model. Yeah. Then we have fine trained. Uh, we typically we don't do so much fine training because we think that we can do the ground training. No one else can do that. Fine training, everyone can do. So we don't really do that. But no one else can do that because they don't have the data that you have. Exactly. Right? So or the competence or the compute resources. Exactly. Uh, so, but we have. In spite of saying that we have actually fine-tuned a couple of models that we thought were sort of, we need to have this, uh, it's like having milk and eggs in your refrigerator. And that is the uh, uh, part of speech model, yes. 
which identified uh, well part of speech. I don't know how to say that in another way in English, but the different kinds of words that you have: nouns, verbs, nouns, adjectives. Verbs, adjectives. Yeah. Part which of is, speech. Yes, so that's a very old classer in Swedish. Old classer, okay, yes. old classer. Nu är med. Yes, so that's a very basic research infrastructure to have that basically. This is we're going into grammar now, grammatics. Yes. Yeah, basic kind of basic grammar. Um, What do you think about that? You know, though, I mean, do you still need to do part of speech when you have BERT models and no. transformers? No, I think it's a wrong direction to yes, go as well. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Are, if you want to go into grammar, there are much more interesting. Uh, approaches like functional grammar. So, so please uh, rephrase the comment or the question or the reflection. It's just, you know, this is a very common NLP in traditional mm. NLP where you want to understand the nouns to properly understand the meaning. Ah. But today, instead of doing the full rule-based kind of grammar mm. of, you know, what is the grammar of yeah. language, you instead, you know, do it fully data-driven. Yeah. You just put in the raw text and it figure out the meaning without knowing the part of speech. Yeah. You, you don't need to teach it grammar to no. make this understand. So this what is trying is the to next predict the grammar and you don't need to. Uh, yeah. Anymore. We have sort of a, a little bit of a keyword in the lab where, where people want to talk with us about traditional NLP and mm. the keyword is morphology. So when people start to talk about that with us, we sort of, yeah, whatever, but we have the models <laughs> and it, Whatever you're doing, it, it does this better. Uh, you know, it doesn't know anything about morphology or grammar or whatever. So it's just power through. So and I agree. But, with but it's a sensitive topic because a lot of researchers yes. have spent like their life. Yeah, and someone comes in and spent their lives on yes. this angle, and you think, well, you don't really need it. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, even researchers at the lab, the guy who's responsible for our larger NLP products, Robin Coates, who's a brilliant researcher. His whole thesis was about dependence, etc. So his whole, you know. He says, "Put that away." And <laughs> Even he says it. Yeah, I think so. Uh, cool. There's But still a you case for. We move it's on. still a case for traditional language technology, absolutely, but not in the same way. I think. So. Okay, KB was it called KB POS or what was it called? Uh, yeah, I think something like that. Yeah. But oh, I don't remember the exact name. Okay. Everything is on the same. You can reach it through our GitHub page. Right. Uh, but you also publish in in Hugging Face, right? But not yeah, the everything. actual models are in Hugging Face. They're hosted there. Yeah, but not all of them, or are they? Yeah, I think all of the. I just had a quick look, and I couldn't find much actually. Mm -hmm. It's like so. When does someone go to GitHub, and when does someone go to Hugging Face? Uh, so in GitHub, you have like, like how to run the models, fine tune them, etc. The mm -hmm. code for doing that. Okay. Uh, and then there's the whole ecosystem in Hugging Face where you can actually do it. Uh, so, um, Hugging Face is, is taking over in, in so many ways. Yes. I think it, it's yes. becoming. If we have this kind of platforms for research articles like Archive, yeah. yeah It seems like this is like a platform for models yes. or data sets. Yes. And it's increasing. Uh, 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 yeah. yeah, they're doing a great job, I think. Um, yeah, so then, then we have the spacing model, which is the sort of the yeah. traditional uh, NLP library uh, in Python uh, for doing basic NLP stuff. Mm. Uh, we are actually. I mean, within the next few days or weeks, at least, we will be the canonical. Uh, Spacey model oh. for Swedish, so we're very yeah, so the official it. like model in Spacey library. Yes, nice. That's, that's, a, that's a big thing, right? Mm, Semi big, yeah. Uh, but we sort of uh, finally 
<laughs> We've been working, it's Elena Fano, who's a data scientist at the lab. She's been working in that direction for quite some time. And so. what do we, you just unpack a little bit, where, where what does this mean? Uh, so the space model uh, it, it, it was actually an NLP tunnel. Uh, so it's sort of a, you put text in one end and then it's stuff with increasingly complex stuff happen to the text and out you could have semantic classes in the end sort of. But this was pre-transformer basically. Very efficient, very, you know, cool and good stuff. Part of speech, it did everything, part of speech entities, uh, what have you. Uh, but it was pre-transformer, but the whole tunnel was this sort of idea. So everyone can sort of, I put my text in here and bloop, I have tons of results in the other end. And now we have a spacey trained, traditionally trained, but also trained um, uh, based on the trans uh, on the KB BERT. So it's sort of, uh, it's a NLP tunnel on steroids, basically. Super cool. Uh, so we had, that's the spacey model. Uh, so, and then it's the entity model, which is one of right. the, uh, unlike Part of speech entities are sort of a thing that people really are interested in. Yes, which is uh, identifying in a text. It's not it's not the grammatical categories, but semantic ones. But so there are persons, organizations, uh, places, uh, locations, times, um, works, also man-made things, uh, which we are interested in because we're interested in, for example, Astrid Lindgren's book, uh, People Longstock. Okay, so people on talk, that's the work. As the link is a person, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so that is um, uh, one of the fine-tuned models. Very important one, I, I must oh. say, as well. And if we have to go to, do you remember all the discussions we have about knowledge graphs, etc.? Yes. Or knowledge bases, if you want to call it mm. that. This is an awesome tool to build up such knowledge. Yes. Ontologies. Which leads us to the next model, which is the bootstrap model, which is to disambiguate entities. Mm. Uh, which we also in a final at the lab uh, trained together with the uh, Stanford Computer uh, Science uh, no. Department of Computer oh, Science. Really? There is um, a, I didn't realize there was such a substantial library of models. Now I, I understood you had models, right? But how we are up in ten now, fifteen? Yeah, it's about fifteen, I think. Mm. Busy then, bees, yeah, busy bees. Yes. So when we plan the vacation, you know, if we don't plan who should be at the library. We plan what should. The, what uh, should the computer exactly. run? Exactly. <laughs> what should they train? So we have a what plan should, for that. Should have a big model during vacation. Week. Yes. So uh, Easter is coming up. What What is running <laughs> on Easter? Good question. <laughs> yeah. We can come into that. But last summer it was the sentence bird <laughs> that came out of that summer. Nice. And how long is it crunching? It depends on the size of the computational. And the biggest we've done is the large bird, I uh, guess. Yeah. Yes. The, the one that the longest to train was the original bird because then we didn't really have computational resources. Okay. Uh, That's another comp, you know, dimension. Of yeah. Uh, so that took seven months, I think. Oh my God. This um, is I mean, cool. Let's just finalize the, the list of models. Yes. Here uh, so, so <laughs> yes. You, um, I'm not sure which one you can Bart. speak about. Bart, yeah. Uh, which is interesting because it's uh, both the decoder and encoder, so it can sort of do the BERT stuff, but it can also produce text. And uh, we have it to, uh, it's a small, it's like a the much known GPT-3, but it's smaller in size. We have it to sort of put it in the end of our sound model. We'll talk about that later. <clears throat> to to enhance the quality of the uh, speech text output, mm -hmm. uh, so it was sort of built for internal purposes. 
And speech to text, we have a model for that. Yes, uh, it's a large uh, word to uh, model. Uh, Vox Rex. Rex is as in royal. You mean wave uh, to vec, right? You said yeah. word to vec. I did, okay. Right. Sorry, wave to vec, sorry. <laughs> uh, wave vec 2.0, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. A large, the larger one. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a base also, but I think larger but This one. is taking uh, speeches or someone speaking. Or, uh, yeah, it's trained on sound. It doesn't know anything about text. For, so the, the ground training for that model is just sound. That's and why it, it's uh, wave to Yeah, vec. exactly. So it is trained in a similar fashion as BERT take away sound and then try to predict it. Uh, but then you have a, a head uh, in the end, which is the uh, speech to text. It doesn't have to be, it could be another head, but that's the most. So head uh, means it in the end it produces. Yeah, an extra layer which just does something else. Um, an extra bookshelf. Yeah, an extra bookshelf, exactly. That is sort of purposely. <laughs> yeah, uh, How many design. neurons is in one bookshelf? When we, when we talk about uh, this. What would that be? That would be... 500? Or? Yeah. No, more. Uh, sorry, this is... <laughs> you know, using your analogy back at you. <laughs> I mean, cool. It's cool. I mean, so you can also not only work with text, but also audio in this case, and, and then produce Swedish text from audio as well. Yeah, and think of this in a library context. So we have uh, all the, the 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 big black unknown sea of data of uh, Swedish radio broadcasts. Mm. The only metadata we have is the listings in the newspapers, mm. which are... Uh, not always correct. And we have all the, the sound comes in, in slots of one hour, so it's not per show. So you have one hour that contain, could contain this, you know, from the listings. So, for example, the night that the Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palme was murdered uh, in Stockholm, uh, the listing says uh, quiet music. So if you research and uh, want to access that sound or find it, there's no way to really... Do that. Okay, we know the dates, we can find it, but you know, you can't really search for it. And it said quiet music because it was normally planned to be quiet music yes. at that time, but then it was exactly. completely different audio. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, but with the sound model, we can get the transcripts that was actually said, mm-hmm. and then we can use the entity model, and right. then we have, you know, uh, so you can follow the whole. Yeah, really uh, the process. Stuff, so that sure. this sort of changes the whole way we can work with that part of the collections. Cool. Space uh, Wave 2 Vec 2.0 as well. And um, anything else you'd like to mention? Some highlights? Or anything with images that you have been thinking of? With images in some way? Yeah, yeah. so uh, we have not trained the clip model, but we have translated, uh, right. which is, is um, two modalities as well, images and text. Uh, so you can you can write the description in Swedish. Um, I don't know what... <laughs> a horse. horse boat uh, balls beach I, mean, I think it's, it's better that if, if you have a large number of images and you simply want to find through these kind of hundreds of thousands of images from newspaper articles or whatnot yeah find me a picture that contains a man with a cape and a dog yeah and you just write in natural language man with a cape and a dog yeah and you will and get that and suddenly it finds it, it yeah. it's actually one of the most uh, I think powerful models that you can think of yeah. 
compared to SentenceBird as well. Yeah. SentenceBird can find similar text. Yeah. This can find similar text, but also similar images. Yeah. And combining the two. Combining the two. It's, it's, it's magic. It's amazing. Yeah. It's cool. It's a powerful uh, model. And when you demo this model, it's like, wow. Mm. Uh, so it's amazing. And also you can, uh, since many of the objects are known, you can actually put uh, entities on them and use a bootleg model to um, uh, disambiguate. So, okay, so this is not only a church, it's actually this church. Mm. Uh, well, uh, cool. it's the, and the whole angle here is that I'm sure that these kind of models uh, of different, all, all the examples you made here, I mean, like there's the English versions of them, I guess, or have you sort of starting to go into, you know, you, we are, we are now do, Swedish is the key yeah. theme here, right? Yes. But uh, I guess when you start going into this field and you, you're actually becoming quite you have come quite far in this field now because you've been a busy bee, as we said, right? So now all of a sudden there are things that you have produced that, you know, are the things that doesn't have their English equivalent yet? It's uh, used to big research community. Yes, I think there is when it comes to, this is a very library specific case. Uh, it has to do with the, the um, peculiarity of the deposit laws. So for example, when we get newspapers due to how the law is constructed, um, and when it was written, we get the newspapers in a physical form and not the, we don't get the print PDF. And then we send it to a factory up in the north of Sweden and they digitize it, send back uh, the digitized copy. And that is just a mess from a data sort of scientific perspective because the articles fall apart. We don't see, we see the text box, but we don't know which text box belong to each other. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so we have to sort of reconstruct the whole uh, you can imagine. Um, it would have been simpler used to get the PDF. <laughs> very much so. And there is a new deposit law coming, so it, it will happen. Uh, uh, but we are very, very, f uh, we have come a long, long way on sort of classifying uh, and ranking that kind of data and building models for that mm -hmm. using the image models clip. And th this is a little bit... Driven by a unique Swedish law. So we, yes, have, we have come yes. extra far on this problem. But <laughs> many natural libraries has this problem. Uh, for example, there's a, a very fine collection of digitized newspapers in Holland. And they have the exact same problem. Mm. Uh, so, uh, and yeah, I think there are many digitized newspaper collections and others, not only newspapers. <laughs> so the problem is actually bigger than you would imagine. Uh, but but here you are quite uh, leading I, it. Yes, I, I think we have come the furthest of everything I've seen. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we do, well, first there's a combination of models, but also that we have, this is Faton at the lab. Uh, he has taken a much more, less text-driven approach. So he uses text, but only as a sort of later in the stages. This is very looking at the text as well as images. Um, to elements. make a text puzzle. Yes. Uh, I think it was an, in actually a recent Google research paper that spoke about OCR, but in a more generalized sense, trying mm. to understand like tables and images and the layout and took advantage of the layout yeah. structure and everything. I don't remember what the name was right now, but yeah. it was a, yeah. it's a tough problem for sure. It's really a tough problem. And um, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, and the time is flying away here. Yeah. Uh, we, should we move into the training model kind of question as well? Uh, 
Um, if if you don't have a better question, that was written idea. No, but it's a great question. I mm -hmm. think. Yeah. How should we start it? Should, should we just speak from you know? How, how do you normally, if you just take the, the simplest kind of steps necessary to train a model mm. that we can publish on Hugging Face or GitHub? Mm. What's the normal procedure? You would you how would you describe that? Uh, we're talking ground. Super simple pre-training things with a KB Birch or thing. Somewhere. Yeah. Well, so the first thing is to consider the data. Mm. Uh, I think. Uh, what data have you? And um, we are still. We have worked now since the lab started basically with data. I mean, that's most of the time. It's just uh, running, cleaning, curating data. And I think you do that to an extent that most people don't understand, I think, yeah. especially with deduplication, et cetera. And yeah. it's also connected to what we said before about the model-centric versus data-centric. Yeah. I think you spend so much time about you know producing the right data rather yeah. than tuning the model yeah. to improve it, right? Yeah. Can you just elaborate a bit more? How do you clean up the data so that it has... Uh, well, <clears throat> first there are um, artifacts from the digitization processes. In when we have digitized data, there's not born digital. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's, and that's heuristic mostly, mm -hmm. uh, not model-driven. Yeah. Uh, there are known errors that we can sort so of clean away. expressions in some way? Or uh, for example, the word OM uh, was... Uh, uh, OCR'd into the urn, which is a bird. Eagle, oh. it has to do with an oddity in that. Uh -huh. Yeah, the OCR. Yeah, software. and OM is such a common word and has such an important sort of, um, yeah. Uh, so a number of hard-coded rules. Hard-coded rules, exactly. Yes. Uh, so that's one important thing so that has to do with, we would like to re-OCR, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's a uh, question of resources and time, etc. You, you are thinking that the, the technology and how you do OCR today is so much better. It's also so, transform-based these days. So, so basically, you, you, are, you are battling old OCR yes. problems to some degree. Yes, to a large degree. Uh, so, um, so that's OCR cleaning. And then we have a huge thing, which is deduplication. Uh, so everything that someone writes, some other worm has already written that <laughs> at least five times. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, and then it's, uh, so the duplication is a big thing. And I think we have... Uh, on article level or on... on, on, on? Uh, so that's a, that's a key question. Which level do you look into this? Mm -hmm. uh, so, and I think sometimes we are a little bit too strict almost. Uh Going to the uh, yeah on the two sort low of low level yeah, uh, but we want to have sort of different entry points into our data duplicate deduplicated at this level du -du 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 -du. you know, and we don't really know. Uh, I don't think anyone know the effects of uh, duplicated data in the models, because in a way that really it reflects language. Uh, so. At least it, it wastes time, and that's one clear yeah. effect, right? Yeah. But we see, I think, when it came to the bird large model, uh, that quality of data uh, enhances the model uh, quality uh, significantly. significantly. Sorry. Uh, so data is really, really important. So thinking about data. Uh, so, so we have the OCR thing, which is sort of uh, heuristic, hard rules, and then we have. Deduplication, 
So in basically, so there's a tunnel for doing that. What's the reduction? Is it like to how, how much from the original data does it? <laughs> if you're strict, uh, we keep about eight nine percent. Really? Yes. It's very depressing. <laughs> <laughs> depressing or compressing? <laughs> this is a very compressing uh, thought. Yeah. Uh, Even I got that joke. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I mean, that's interesting. Yeah. So a uh, lot of duplication then. Yeah, because I mean, we could easily scrape, uh, you know, a terabyte of uh, web data yeah. and then it just yeah. shrinks. Um, so, um, but there are other sources that are better. And uh, like, uh, so we also, there's a big hole in the digital collections, which, which are uh, monographs or novels. Uh, so. And there is also an increasingly fast uh, inflow of data. So in half a year, we will have much more data. Mm -hmm. Not only that we add up in the same time, but we sort of, uh, the inflow is much bigger. So here's a lot of of stuff summarizing, get your data in order. Get your data in order. And the last step, or not last step, but one really important aspect is also balancing the data. Uh, which charts should be represented. Uh, what is the purpose of the model? Uh, we have to balance data in relation to the purpose of the model. So, but maybe start there. You know, how do you select the problem? And, yeah. and the, the, you know, how do you select what problem to solve? And how do you select, you know, the question to ask? Yes. If I, if I take the example, the first bird, yeah. how do you get about, how do you, what's that process all about? Yeah, so the... Uh, the standard answer to that is we are a national library. We uh, should represent all varieties of Swedish mm-hmm. uh, language. So we can't really take anything away. Mm-hmm. Um, we can take away, we cannot take away stuff that is racist, for, for example, uh, or bad Swedish, or, you know, we can't have the, the nicer text only in our models because the models will be useless. We want to have models that can understand all varieties of Swedish. Uh, so we need to have flashback, etc. But we need to think about the balancing because if we scrape flashback as a whole, uh, it will be um, uh, the model w- would be too, how should I say, uh, geared towards flashback data too much. So we have to sort of think about. Uh, how, how much of the flashback uh, semantics <laughs> do we want to influence the model with? Exactly. In, in relation to newspaper data, in relation to um, whatever we have, governmental text in relation to blah, blah, blah. Mm. Uh, yeah, cool. I'm, I'm trying to push things along a bit because we, we have more co- topics to cover uh, or yeah, we should have a yeah. topic. So let's 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 sure. maybe do it a little bit more faster to understand the process. But you have the data part, and I don't think people realize how much work you need to spend here mm. on actually producing the data from the raw data that you have into mm. some kind of um, pre-processed data that you can start train on. Yeah. Right? Uh, and I, is that what you spend more time on rather than how to tune the model and do that? Uh, yes, I think that's the major part of our time. Yes. Uh, but then training is also, you know, training always involves restarting stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it involves having training frameworks that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we run them. But if we start yeah. on the simple part of it, yeah. you know, not thinking like huge uh, clusters that we have to train on. Mm-hmm. And, and they're saying, okay, we have the data. Now we need to feed that into a model and, and run that on mm. some GPU machine on, on in some way. Yeah. 
And what, can you just very briefly go through the techniques? Do you normally use PyTorch, for example? How, how do you? Do um, this? So nowadays it's different. Um, uh, the ecosystems that come from the hardware producers, mm. the, they have an ecosystem of uh, training frameworks mm. uh, to speed up, basically. Um, but now we're speaking like large language models and Megatron kind of stuff, or what? yeah, okay. Uh, but so if we, we simplify it a bit more, and okay. So don't, we, don't go there. Okay. Right yet. No, so if you simplify it, yes, PyTorch or or something similar, yeah. um, and you can do it. Uh, if you just fine tune, you can do it on Hugging Face. Yeah. Um, so so okay, you you do you have some kind of pipeline. You first yeah. have the data, you convert it, you clean it. Do you mm. do that in? Do you have like an automated pipeline for doing it, so you can rerun it, or do you have a lot of manual steps? Uh, it's a lot of manual steps, and we're still getting to know to know the data, mm. even though we have work, been working with data since the lab started. It mm. still sort of uh, surprises us. Uh, so, and, and I would say that when it comes to sort of knowing Swedish text data. It's hard to beat us. Uh, we know a lot about it, uh, but still, there's stuff that we sort of whoa. Mm. Uh, so it's so no, there's no automated pipeline, but, but we're build we sort of getting there to automate the process. Mm. But but um, uh, you you are losing me on one topic here. So and maybe this is obvious for you as experts. But okay, we have the training. We have we have pre-processed data, mm -hmm. and then and then you jump to now we start training the model. Well, you know, what does it mean to set up a model or, or what do you need to build a model? Do you need to take a model? What, what is, is that, is that a part in between here? We train the model, you know, what's the model here? Yeah. So the model is an, an architecture of a neural network that comes from somewhere. We don't really develop those ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, we are parasites. <laughs> and using, for instance, uh, for example, the bird, bird. architecture so, that so, came so, from so. Google, and then there are other providers of those architectures. Uh, so he here we have the whole open source idea that there are mm. huge, fantastic work done by someone mm. really building the first architecture yeah. of the neural network. Let's say BERT. Uh, yeah, high and resource actors typically. High resource actors, and now basically, okay, so we have this whole neural network architecture now. Mm -hmm. And now I don't want it to be fed with English text. Nope. So we are now taking our pre-pros data and pushing that through one of those pre-architected yes. neural networks. Yeah. And the thing we sort of um, mani manipulate a little bit is uh, the, how we present data to the model. Ah. Um, in, bat in terms of batch sizes, uh, length of the sentences, etc. And why is that important? Uh, also thinking about sort of the downstream task that you want to solve. Mm. So if you have, if you're going after entities, you don't want too long sentences, uh, for example. Uh, and that's kind of intuitive. Uh, so this, you're entering into the dark arts here, uh, because we don't have the answers. And, and let um, me ask you a question now. Do you need to know the end game, what question you are going for before you even start the, the data uh, pre-processing? The more you know about that, the, the easier it gets. The more clear you are what you're after. If yes. I'm going to build an entity model, yeah. okay. Yes. You want to have that in mind when yes. you start doing yes. data pre-processing. Yeah. yeah. But it could also be a problem because if you start to sort of uh, running off, there's a, a one thing that happens when you have trained a model, it will be evaluated within a framework of tests that it calls GLUE. Uh, which is a f te test framework, basically. It's uh, available in English, and then we have uh, translated into Swedish, and we are also annotating together with AI Sweden and the Swedish National Language Bank to get proper 
gold standard uh, test sets, uh, training data and test sets. But before uh, we jump into evaluation, of it, yeah. I think that's uh, basically, these are the three steps mainly, yeah. right? You, you have the data processing, you have the model training, and you have evaluation, and you have glue and uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. And you can continue to annotate it and, and improve on that in different ways. But yeah. just keeping slightly on the model training yeah. part. Yes. So th- now you have the data, you start training. And then normally, if everything goes well, you just push the button and it trains and then it stops at some point. But that's not normally how it works, right? No. Uh, usually there's something wrong with the code. <laughs> that's, I mean, the first, that's the first thing. Yes. So, so the uh, code is written by researchers and it's <laughs> production level code and it's yeah. horribly bad in different ways. Right? It's horribly bad and it's not transparent in the uh, scientific articles mm. exactly how they're done. Not that people hide stuff, but there's so many things to think about. So, for example, I think that was the thing that happened with Electra. There was some... Uh, not the variable, but the fixed parameter that we got wrong somehow. Mm-hmm. And we haven't figured out which one. Uh, and we won't because there are other better models now. But I think uh, this is so a big confusion for, you know, I remember from Platorian days, so many companies came and said, you know, what, what do you mean? It's open source. Yeah, you yeah. have the code there. Yeah. What do you mean? We just feed our data to it and that's mm-hmm. it. You know, mm-hmm. why do we need to do anything else? And they don't understand how low quality this piece of code has. Yes, right? it's, uh, you really need to have your own uh, very high sort of data science competence to yeah. understand how to to fix broken code, basically, yes. and also to adjust it to your special use case because we have data sets that will not be, well, this is a different language, first of all, but it will also be different sized, et cetera, et cetera. So, the whole um, so what does that mean do you rewrite code do you write yeah. out snippets or do you take the open source code and then okay I have this as a template but now I code it the way I want it yes uh, a lot of that is going on a lot of uh, you know training algorithms uh, training sessions that explode uh, halfway through and just stops and becomes nothing uh, and then okay start over um, and trying to uh, it's important if you very often you sort of move around in a landscape where you have an intuition about what, what is going on, but you don't really know. Um, and we can't test because that will take too much time. So you have to have a data scientist who are knowledgeable. Not, they have to have the technical knowledge, but they also have to have some kind of uh, knowledge on a deeper level, on that level that we call intuition, basically. Cool. Experience. Yeah. So, yeah. So you, you fight against the code, you tear your hair off in, in you know, yeah. frustration over it's just how bad. You, I thought that was the new haircut. <laughs> <laughs> but also, do you do any tweaking at this point on some hyperparameters, et cetera, when you run the training? Uh, that happens, yes. Um, Can you give an example of what kind of tweaking you're doing? Mm, well, so, I mean, the most obvious thing is how much we train stuff. Mm. Uh, and the other one is... Turning um, um, rate, perhaps? Yes, uh, batch sizes. Uh, it could also be that we skip some of the training. Mm. We thought we saw And then you some, don't restart. You basically, you know, you do some training, yeah. you just tweak it a bit and you continue the training yes. because you don't have the time to exactly. restart it all the exactly. time. Exactly. Right? You can reverse it a little bit mm. and start over because you can see some, okay, so now we're doing it by the book and then we see signs of uh, the model actually becoming worse. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so let's back it up a little bit and try it a different way forward. Mm. Um, 
Cool. And I really, you know, we only have like 15 minutes left. So I'm trying to really push it forward here quickly and do but, that. But then for evaluation, you know, you mentioned glue and we also have the Swedish one, yeah. Superlim, et cetera, right? And, yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, can you just elaborate? What, what's uh, Superlim? Yeah. So Superlim is the Swedish version of the uh, framework for testing these models, which has become the standard. So mm. every, every model should be tested in, in a similar fashion. So together with other actors, uh, Språkbank and language, the Swedish Language Bank and AI Sweden, we are um, uh, making a Swedish framework, basically, mm. the gold standard. And the lab's part will be to host the leaderboard, uh, which is interesting, I think, because we're talking about efficiency. So we want to have an efficiency. Uh, right. Measure. Not only performance in terms of accuracy, but also in terms of yeah. compute. Yeah. So that's a um, discussion. What should efficiency be then? Yeah. Uh, but we're talking about now a very sort of a starting point, at least, could be uh, uh, something related to you relate the uh, outcome to um, the size of the model. Mm. Yeah. Um, that sounds great. It's, I guess it's similar to CPUs these days. I mean, it's not only about the gigahertz or, or the mm. flops they can do, but it's flops per dollar or it's mm. flops per energy consumption. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about right. energy consumption here, yeah. actually. Right. I mean, also usability for lower resource uh, or even middle resource uh, users. Yeah. Mm. Should we just very briefly as well, you know, when you start training these super huge models on these super big clusters, and mm -hmm. I know you have trained it on like these big EU clusters mm -hmm. like uh, Vega, etc. Yes. And can you just mention how big is Vega? And it's... Uh, oh... How many GPUs are that? It's on a petaflop scale. Mm. Um, so it's not one of the really large ones. Uh, it's small to, to compare to some others, but it's still yeah. hundreds of GPUs yeah. in some ways. Yeah. Right. Uh, so we have been able to do stuff that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Mm. Uh, and also, uh, I mean, the sheer number of models that we can produce uh, yeah. in this context. Um, so is there anything different when you train a model on these kind of large clusters uh, compared to? Yes, it is. Uh, there's more engineering-like, uh, you know, um, concerns or yeah. yeah. So it's the main concern is to have the machine, the GPUs uh, work at as high as on as a high level uh, sort of. Uh, be, yeah, being utilized as, uh, on a very high level, uh, all of them, yeah. and that's really hard because you can you can always always make it work, but you want to when you have a big machine, you want to use the whole machine. Yeah. Uh, Are you doing synchronized training then, or can you have asynchronous <laughs> batches that you can train on? Mm. How is that on the Vega framework? They were using the so um, the Vega framework, the Vega pod is uh, NVIDIA based. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so yes, mm -hmm. uh, but then Megatron, what was that? Uh, so that's was that what uh, you used, by the way, for Vega or uh, yeah, we we try different okay. ways to train. Um, uh, and the thing is, we want to sort of we want to align with Hugging Face because that is such an awesome framework to share models and fine tune them, etc. Uh, but mm -hmm. using Hugging Face in terms of training really large models is too slow, so we need, need to use the NVIDIA computing frameworks uh, because they know their machines, so they know how to design this to make it work really, really fast, mm -hmm. uh, which is good, but it's not usable for others. So there's a sort of a 
trade-off. Yeah, there's a trade-off. It's easier for us to produce the models, but it's harder for others to use it. So, um, and then we have other super pods in Finland, etc. They're not NVIDIA-based, and then we have to port the code, blah, blah, blah. Um, so Lumi is this big Finland cluster. Yeah, which is... Is it open yet, or it's supposed... No, no. no still not open? It's supposed to be open, I think, last summer or something. But Yeah, so it's open. You can access the uh, CPUs. Mm. Uh, but not, not a GPU, GPU cluster. Yeah. And it's supposed to be an AMD, not yeah. an NVIDIA yeah. GPU cluster. Yeah. So and a big question for us was, uh, is AMD building their own ecosystem, which would be mm. a good thing. Yeah. Uh, that's their uh, ambition, at least, as far as we understand them. And why is it good that we have an NVIDIA ecosystem versus an AMD ecosystem? Uh, we want to have competition. Okay, competition, simply. I mean, NVIDIA has such a big uh, monopoly on yeah. GPU training today. It's, it's, it's a bit scary. Yeah, it's a bit scary. They do fantastic stuff, but the yeah. monopoly is never good. So, um, I mean, we have Berzelius and we have, what's the one in Luxembourg? What's that called? Uh, Meluxina. Meluxina, right. We're hoping to use that uh, this autumn. Right. And do you apply yes. to, to use it? And yes. so they have some sort of. Uh, you can apply at different levels. Uh, like I think it's A, B, C, D, or something like that. And uh, where D is an absurd amount of hours, GPU hours. Mm-hmm. So, um, do you, you pay for it or you get granted to use uh, it? No, as a governmental agency. Uh, they, they select who's Yeah, future. And the reason for that is already financed by the member states. Yeah. So mm-hmm. Sweden as a nation actually own parts of these pods, even mm-hmm. the ones that are abroad. Okay, it's an is this is the way. So the, and, to and use I, our taxpayers' yeah, money. Yeah, the taxpayers' money. <laughs> but I'm and, using your money. Yeah. yeah and, <laughs> and how competitive is it to get some hours? In the beginning, it was very easy. Now it's more competitive. I think personally that it is, it's a good thing to have a certain degree of redundancy when it comes to computational resources in society at large because that reduces uh, all the administration around it mm. considerably. So I- even though there's a cost for redundancy, the total cost will be lower. Yeah, because if, if it's a high competition, do you have all this bureaucracy? Yes. Who should get the hours? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I get it. So. Cool. Um, I'm thinking if we should move to more societal topics, but um, I, I'm eager to take some more. I guess it is symbolic in some way. Uh, for one, okay, so, l- you can choose. I, I will list a number of topics now, okay. and you can pick one, unless you have something you want to. Uh, no, I, I, I have a, I have a question, but maybe we should take it after after work. <laughs> okay. Whoa. Okay. And uh, is it let's about do that. Models? No, no, it, yeah, yeah. It's it's about multi or not. Ah, multi what? Multimodal. Should oh, we go oh. multimodal versus not? Yeah. Oh, okay. But that, we, okay, but uh, I here as one of his choices uh, as well. So okay, I was uh, joking with no, before no. you arrived. Uh, with, no, but with, uh, I, so that's one of my favorite topics. Yeah, and I, I I was joking. Oh, I bet you Anders is gonna <laughs> put you on the wall, multimodal or not. <laughs> Uh, so that was a joke, but we can. We already spoken about Clip, you know. It's one of the oh. most powerful multi- multimodal models yeah. we have. Okay, so one potential question, and you can select one or multiple. But okay, one could be pros and cons with GPT three, and a Swedish one. Yes. Another yeah. one could be: um, should we go more multimodal or not? So I'm picking <laughs> it from you because you said it. Yeah. You liked it though. Yes. Yes. <laughs> now there can be the question of. You know, having large model and continuously scaling them versus usability. Yes. I guess it's connected to GPT-3. Mm-hmm. Now that could be 
uh, more neural networks, deep learning things versus symbolic AI. Mm-hmm. What is the useful way to go coming five years? Yeah. Or should it be a hybrid in some way? Yes. Another can be, should we, how do we make the best use of AI? Um, I, I would argue that AI are, are, is good at some stuff. Mm. Uh, humans are good at other stuff. What's the best way to have a benevolent use of AI? That, that's one topic. Mm. Um, we, we will be here all nice. <laughs> no, no, you can't choose them all. You have to pick one, his favorite now. Um, hmm. And uh, let's see if we should put add some more. Uh, yeah, okay. So uh, last one, then you can choose one. I can repeat them later if you mm. want. To. Another one could be that we saw a recent, uh, you know, AI index report uh, from Stanford, actually. Mm-hmm. Hi, the high report. What the, the high uh, the human AI? I, it was called AI index, uh, and it's done every year, I think. But mm. Stanford actually produced this report, and it's trying to, you know, look at the number of metrics. Mm on how AI is being used. And, and one of the metrics is called is number of, or the amount of private investments mm. being done in AI and mm. in US compared to China and EU. And the, the weird thing here, you know, we've been speaking about um, AI divide a bit. And if you look at this graph, it was actually surprising to me when I saw this report, is that the amount of private inves- investments in this AI index report is actually accelerating in US mm-hmm. faster than it is in Europe. Mm. Yeah, perhaps you can see it. Here. Yeah, this is not high. What was this? That human AI. What is it's it should be the private investments uh, graph if you can find it. It's a big report here, but yeah. Uh, so it's not yeah. only on okay. the it's not only on a high level, but it's also increasing faster. It is. So I'm sorry. It's yeah. it's um, not I'm only on a high level, but it's increasing faster. Yeah. So yeah, if you think of the graph, I can just show with my hands. You know, the the, the U.S. has always been on the top, but it's it's accelerating faster than EU and especially and and China is trying to catch up. But uh, it should it should be some other private investments. Here, no, no, it should be like three lines in a graph. Uh, go down. It's it's such a big report. It's hard to find. Go go a bit further down. A private investment in geography area. And it's getting close there, but it, that, yeah, oh, there it is. This, this, this is one. the one. I'm, yeah. You see here, you know, it's insane. You know what? E- US is accelerating their private investments compared to China and Europe, right? Yeah. So just looking at the numbers, the European efforts in this area is uh, one third of what they have in China, and the Chinese efforts is one. Yeah, almost ten times, right? Yeah. And it's, it's accelerating. And, and this is really scary to me, actually. What, what's your, th- okay, let's start with this topic. What do you think about this? Uh, it surprises me. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, it surprises me as well. Yeah. Um, uh, I would, you know, my guess would be that the European countries will sort of ex- have accelerated this mm-hmm. over the last mm-hmm. few years, at least. Yeah, but, but they have accelerated, but, but the, on, the amount yeah, of acceleration yeah, is the, because it's a big acceleration. Yeah, but it, it's, it's, it's not, t- not only the numbers; it's the aggressive, it's aggressiveness of acceleration, which is nothing. Yeah, but but EU going from 2020 to 21, it's more than doubled, I, I think here. Yeah, but still, if you look at US, they went from like 26, seven to 52, so they doubled. Yeah. Also, but they also started from uh, like 10 times higher starting point. Yeah. So if you look at this, it's 
insane, right? Yeah. Will will not this cause an even increasing AI divide? You think? Yes. Uh, I think it would be interesting, of course, to see uh, what kind of businesses uh, doing these investments in the US. Is it the larger companies? Is like, it uh, is it five companies that is exactly yeah. doing uh, this? Or is that a good a good guess? I would say. Uh, I would say it's five <laughs> companies behind yeah. that number. Uh, yeah. I don't think it's like yeah, this. I mean, Look uh, how do you know? Uh, you don't at, know. Look at the numbers above. So you have, right, so you have uh, Germany 4.4, France 3.9, that is already 8.3. And here it's 6.42. So this oh. is not correct. Well, you have to send a complaint to them. Um, so you see, 6.42 for the entire European Euro Union. Mm. And only Germany and uh, and uh, France have in total eight point four, eight point three. I think I have an explanation for that actually, uh, because I think it depends. Would you count, for example, DeepMind as European or American? Because DeepMind is owned by Google, but it's placed in London. Yeah, but it doesn't That's matter because if you are statistically, if you are doing something like that, you cannot mm. actually do it because this is hundred and forty nine. <laughs> so maybe there is something different that is here. Yeah. What are we looking at differently in those two graphs, by the way? Yeah, it's like three times higher for years. Ah, we shouldn't get stuck in this. We yeah, should. Yeah. But, but that's an interesting observation. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, but this was a big, you know, I was surprised when I saw this and it yeah. came out like a month ago or something. It's rather yeah. recent. Yeah. And it's from Stanford, your place. Yeah, yeah. You have to defend it. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Um, but no, I think it's so kind of depressing. Yeah. I don't know. It's really, really hard if I look at the governmental sector to use AI mm -hmm. uh, for good reasons and for bad reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, and the bad reasons is, of course, that uh, people higher up in the organization don't know this stuff. Uh, so, and then it's really hard to go from lab to production. Exactly. Of, uh, that's an awesome point. I wish we had an hour more to speak about that. Okay, so let's do, like, you can only answer, like, 30 seconds now. Oh, okay. Like a lightning talk kind so, of thing. So Where? there was an explanation, I need to apologize. Ah. So this is basically accumulated from 2013 to 2022, ah, I see. 21. I see. And this is basically, ah. if you calculate everything, yeah. this is going to be accumulated, but this is per year. So yeah, this yeah, is 52 yeah, billion for this year. For that so the area year. under would be matching yeah. the... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So this okay. is true. So. Okay. Okay. Stanford. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you shouldn't. It would be fun if you found a bug in Stanford. Yeah, that would have been, that would have been amazing. <laughs> okay, so super quick reactions. What do you think about building a Swedish GPT three? What are the pros and cons with that? Uh, yeah. So when you talk to people who in in the valley in the Bay Area, uh, where the um, big yeah, GPT-3 is behind the API. Uh, no one has really found a super useful case for this Good model. Point. Yes. Uh, so that's a problem. On the other hand, as a researcher, we know that the big sort of uh, benefit is usually the, the things that you don't think of. Right. So uh, you have to do some kind of basic research and then later see what the use will be. It's exactly. Yeah. I mean, people come up with all kinds of weird stuff eventually. Mm -hmm. So I think the GPT-3 eventually, probably, and will, you know, someone will 
find something out to probably put it in another context uh, or someone will build another model upon that, you know, so it will be a stepping stone or something like that. And it's interesting that it can do so many different tasks. Yeah. So if you were interested in general in AI, then of course this is an interesting move. Right? Yeah. Uh, drawbacks with the model is it's really, really big. I mean, the, the big GPT-3 is uh, 175 million, a billion. Sorry, uh, uh, parameters. So that's a model just to sort of uh, to do normal inference on that. You have to have uh, substantial computational resources to to use it. Yeah. Um, that's a big problem. Another big problem is that it's uh, the case for building a Swedish one. Of course, is that then it would be sort of not behind the walls of a big company. It would be mm-hmm. something, yeah. Uh, then there's the security issues um, because if you want to produce fake news, etc., you always have the advantage of not having to fact check. Yeah. <laughs> so the model can just, pro, you know, you can build your own um, newspaper factory. That is a problem with the model with this kind of capacity. And it, it looks really good. Right? The generated text looks yes. like it's, it's proper. Yeah. At least from a grammar point of view, but not from a factional f- factual point of view. Exactly, and this could be done in a number of ways. So, for example, it doesn't have to be straight out lies. It just could be re- repeat someone in a context, like very many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, Good. So that's the problem. Yes, yeah. pros and cons, but yeah. still questionable um, if it's worth spending so many millions if, and billions of dollars and, and crowns into but this questionable. But, but isn't a simple argument here also that uh, um, GPT-3, whether we like it or not, has captured our imagination and mm. it has captured the imagination of even the layman, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then it's an easy sell. Oh, we need a Swedish GPT-3. Yeah. So even if, you know, as an expert, we would know, you could probably do smarter things with your money than that. But now this is a someone that has the money yeah. and has you know could relate to that because yeah. it was capturing our imagination yeah and that's happening in Sweden right now so there, there will be GP freeze plural out there oh. in different sizes uh, I'm pretty sure it's and, in, and in, a year in reality if, if I'm cynical it's because people who don't really are the real expert could relate to that because it became such yeah. a news hype thing yeah and if we will, we will also see it in other countries, uh, European countries. Of so the hype um, is ruling again. The hype is ruling, but the hype is also sort of, um, it's not as hype. The hype is lower now, I would say. I mean, you you can start ago. to find some proper use for it. But I think as long as they do list, you know, this is the reason for why you should invest that much money mm-hmm. for it. Then I'm okay yeah, with give me it. give me a clear story. Yeah. What's the clarity? What's the what? What are you planning to use it for? Yeah. That's a simple question, yeah. right? And and but then again, from a research perspective, you could say from a research perspective, you could say that um, we want to learn more about big models. <laughs> yes, that's a fairly good STEM reason, but also that we don't really know, but we think that this is an infrastructure that will somehow yield results that yeah. are interesting down the line. So I, because maybe that's the point, and we want to build this in order to better understand what how. Inf- infrastructure should look yeah, like for this. Right, I mean, in the library context, I can see a clear use. We could use it to describe our collections in different ways. Right. Uh, cool. So, um, but uh, I mean, one very simple, as you said, we want to learn more about generated text and how to generate text, uh, what we can do about that. Let's uh, take another small question. <laughs> Not so small, but try to keep the answer small at least. Um, mm-hmm. 
So uh, currently a very big debate on Twitter, at least, is mm-hmm. between some of the more um, deep learning based people or neural network kind of people like Jean Le Kun <laughs> versus people that are more into symbolic AI like uh, Gary Marcus, etc. Yeah. And I'm not sure if you have followed that at all or have you? No, not uh, really. Yeah. Um, but he, he, for example, argues that oh, this is so hard to do briefly. <laughs> uh, but, okay, so I'm thinking about my answer already and the first thing I was oh, this answer is too long <laughs> <laughs> and I don't re- even know the question yeah. but uh, okay let's let's phrase it like this then um, <laughs> so you can the quite no very few people have a good definition of what symbolic AI really means yes does it mean the old traditional kind of formal logic yeah. that you use for reasoning in yeah, some way, yeah, yeah. the old type of expert system in the yeah. 1980s? Yeah. Is that what we're speaking about? Or is it like what Gary Marcus speaks more about, this kind of hybrid neural symbolic systems, mm-hmm. yeah. like actually AlphaGo, that he mentioned as an example, where they have a neural network or two of them, but then combined with a Monte Carlo tree search, and he argues that Research is a symbolic AI, hard-coded, rule-based thing mm-hmm. added together with deep learning networks. Mm-hmm. And in that way, it becomes a hybrid system. And he believes that is the proper way to do it in the future. Uh, do you have any thoughts about this? Um, I mean, the real breakthrough when it came to the transformer transformation of mm-hmm. how we do things uh, wasn't model-driven at all. It was driven by hardware, basically, mm-hmm. and data. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's an interesting. There's a long answer. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it was a stupid question to bring up. I think. Uh, no, but so I think it's interesting when you have the sort of when the paradigm shifts in a way. Uh, I think it's very often driven by a technical breakthrough, yeah. more than anything else. Uh, and then after, uh, and then it sort of it just uh, steamrolls everything you think you know before. And then afterwards, you know, uh, steamroll has rolled away. Some of that will start to grow again, and some of it will not. Mm-hmm. And you just use the stuff that is still useful. So, for example, entities still useful, part of speech not so much, yeah. uh, etc. So, some of the more traditional symbolic formal stuff uh, will prevail and prove useful in a future setting. Some of some of it will not. And can it also be that we get more and more clear when it's useful and for what very particular purpose it, it yeah. has a good performance yeah. uh, efficiency? Yeah. Perhaps, yes. Yeah. I, I, I think there's also a lot of you know, pride connected to this. Yeah, and, and very they, much. Right. Yeah. And uh, they want to keep using the terms because they have yes. said they believed in it in the yeah, past. Hence the keyword at the lab, morphology. Yeah. yeah. Morphology. And people, then we know, okay. <laughs> they are hurt to the traditional paradigm. What so, is the definition of morphology? Is it just the I'm history not, of the uh, word? Or? Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really. I, I, I used to know it sometime and then I forgot it. Um, but that's a thing that we, when we first came out with a model, we got a very, much of the sort of feedback was very traditional, mm-hmm. uh, formalistic sort of questions. Right. Uh, and we were sort of, it doesn't really matter. We, bypass that now perhaps you should phrase it like um, Jan Le Kuhn did you know he, he was so upset you know after all the discussions so he wrote this short tweet saying put up or shut up basically uh, yeah. saying if you you know show me that it works yeah. put up yeah if you can't shut up exactly exactly that's the sort of that could be uh, one of the many motors of the lab as well my lab yeah uh, 
does it work or not? Um, Perhaps uh, uh, one of the final questions here. Um, if we speak about AI and humans in general, um, you can think about you know what is the most benevolent way to use AI. Yeah, and and you can think that potentially AI is good at some stuff and humans are good at some stuff and potentially they're not the same. Yeah, and uh, and one saying at least that we are often using is that AI perhaps can go through huge amount of data, perhaps KB mm-hmm. size data in some way, but a human, a single human, would never able be able to do so. Yeah, but on the other hand, a human potentially could go through a small amount of data. Yeah. potentially found or filtered out or enriched by AI, yeah. but do that in a much deeper way than AI ever could. Yes. Do you think that's a good way to phrase the differences or how would you phrase uh, AI versus humans? First of all, I don't think really know. I mean, there's so many issues here. One is what is intelligence, etc., uh, or understanding. I mean, that's an issue all the time. Do these net, do these models really understand anything? Yeah. And I'm sort of leaning. GPT three conscious as uh, yeah exactly. <laughs> and you are leaning to uh, that they really don't understand stuff. They yeah. have networks that are adjusted to some stuff, mm-hmm. um, but um, doesn't really matter. Or on the, on the other hand, you could argue that that is understanding. That's exactly what happens in a human brain as well. Right. Uh, so then. What is the difference? Uh, but one thing that you sort of see when you work a lot with this is that some stuff that we thought were super complex, human stuff, weren't that complex at all. Right. Um, right. So it, it's not only that the, the algorithm can do fantastic stuff, also some of the human stuff weren't so complicated that we uh, initially made thought. It so, you, you needed to crack the code how to set it up, maybe. Yeah. Or understand the once problem. we have large enough networks, we see... The, you know, so I think, for example, the way we express ourselves is more limited than we thought initially um, when it comes to language. Uh, so it's easier for us to learn this than we thought. There is a special name for this. Uh, I don't recall. It's something with Molokorfi's Molo law or something. But it basically says that tasks that we think are difficult like playing chess yeah it's actually hard for humans to do yeah but it turns out to be simple for you for ai yeah and things that are you know uh, hard for ai can be really simple for humans yes at some point yes. like we take for granted to be able to walk or to see and all this yes okay. yeah and um, yeah I have a background in the Navy and we had this signal in the Morse code. Do, 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 do. And when you have two Morse codes in the air simultaneously, mm-hmm. a human could quite easily, with some training, distinguish them from each other. Uh, yes, you know, we were, this was super hard for a computer to learn this. Um, I mean, I think we should recognize that AI, of course, is very different from humans to start with. Yeah. And also that AI is, is bad at some stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But so are humans. Human can't even multiply large numbers or memorize stuff to any extent. It's horrible. Our mem- memory capabilities is horrible in some way. Yes. Right? I mean, there's the scale of things, but it's also this sort of persistence in, you know, presented with the same data or problem, a human will make different uh, conclusions or decisions, right. uh, which is not desirable. Uh, so, so that's the thing. Also, one thing that they talk about when sort of regulating stuff, uh, <laughs> European style, uh, there's a problem with transparency of these large AI models. Yes, 
but there's a problem with transparency when it comes to human uh, right. exactly. actors. Well, for example, uh, writing um, a lawyer writing why this person should be sentenced to this or that. We see the outcome, but we don't see the process at all. No, um, that's a really good. Idea. So. Um, a lot of the things that we sort of assume that humans are better at, uh, humans are actually worse at. And the same goes for, there's a lot of talk of bias, for example, with AI models. That's true. It, it is a problem. It, it, it is an issue that should be sort of discussed uh, seriously. But we uh, we have bigger problems when it comes to bias, when it comes with the sort of human decisions. And, uh, very true. Very true. Um Awesome. We're a bit over time, but it's mm. uh, been worth it, I, I think. And we could, we have so many more questions we could continue with, but um, I think we should uh, try to wrap it up a bit and continue mm. with the after after work and to take the real juicy questions then. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Luve, what's next in your life? What's happening coming months? Professionally, oh, privately? Privately, yeah. So professionally, we will uh, try to set up to keeping our own machines at least busy during the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you started to plan for that already now? Yeah. yeah. So, so what, what, what will you be crunching this summer? It's a little bit of a secret. Oof, that's an after, after yeah, work topic. It will be discussed <laughs> with other governmental agencies, etc. cetera. Uh, but it will be stuff that we can use in the, it will be a little bit internally oriented for once, mm. uh, for our uh, user needs and other governmental agencies as well. Mm. Uh, so that's for the summer. Uh, for the autumn, we are planning to use uh, the uh, um, pod in Luxembourg, Alexina. And so it's not a podcast that. now, it's a it, computer pod. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so to have a larger product there too. And then, uh, then we're talking a huge amount of data, huge neural networks. So the, it has to be sort of a a very careful process deciding which model to actually build. Yeah. And so you are right now pondering of what type of model you're wanting to go next for. Yes. Mm. And you have a short list of yes. favorites. Yes. But the, the thing is the short, li- the short lists are not long lived no. uh, because all of a sudden someone comes up with something. Mm. Uh, I want to train a blip model. Understood. <laughs> what's, what's a blip? Uh, it's, it's a version of clip. Yep. But clip it's, it's really no, but cool. that's a fantastic idea. I mean, we have, uh, so we started with sound and all of a sudden we could do all these things with sound at the library. We have also the, uh, the TV broadcasts. Mm. This uh, is the blip. So, I mean, cool. uh, so we want to do video clip. models. Um, and, 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 and then again. There's so many choices for sure. Yeah, there's so many choices. And then again, I mean, the amount of data when it comes to video is just, uh, mm. you know. Sounds like a Luxembourg problem. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually very funny. Yeah, awesome, Henrik. Uh, I was a little bit slow there, so I'm sort of understanding now. Luve, anyone that you would recommend to come on this podcast? Someone that you would love to hear us interrogate? Here? Yes. Uh, it, does it have to be a Swede? Or? We prefer to have them here physically. Yeah. But uh, if they can come to Sweden, then. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Dream big first and then go. uh, Yeah. Reach for the stars. I'm trying to remember the sort of previous guest list here uh, because you have. um, It's like 70 of them. So it's kind of. Yeah. 
let me think a little bit. Uh, talk about something else in 30 seconds. <laughs> well, um, uh, we will continue with the after after work, yes. and uh, we will have discussions yeah. then. And trying to get you know Luva to speak about you know what the plans are for the summer. Yeah, we we will uh, definitely get that out of yes. it. Yes, yeah, in some way or form. Yeah, I would. It would be interesting, I think, to talk to someone who is a little bit of a decision maker, maybe in a governmental agency, mm. uh, who is. Uh, doing perhaps a good job, but not a perfect job, trying to implement AI stuff. Oh, any specific agency or something you are thinking of? Like um, Skatteverket or? Yeah. They're, example, they're doing traffic some work, racket. traffic racket. Yeah. Uh, so maybe not the person like me, but someone, perhaps <laughs> one further up in the organization. Well, is someone sponsoring that we should do something? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a problem in, in the uh, boards of the governmental agencies. I think that this kind of competence is not represented. Uh, that is a general problem. Well, what's, uh, I like it very much. Um, but can you just elaborate a bit more? Why, why do you think perhaps not having a person that is, you know, uh, the level of technical understanding that you have, but mm. in, in a higher or in a board position or something. What's what's the reasoning yeah, for having that person on, you think? Yeah, I mean, the higher up you in the organization, the less you know about the <laughs> yeah, That's a good definition, I think, yeah. you know, I mean, and it's C-suite. But you, yeah. you, want, you want to hear the decision maker's perspective uh, of the stuff we're yes. dealing with. Uh, because, how, I mean, how, because I, I, knew, I know less than my data scientists do about training and, mm. you know, uh so it would be a more technical informed conversations if you if you yes. were to have them here uh uh and but i think it's uh, in the boards you have the different domains of knowledge are represented this is a huge new domain it needs to be represented somehow I like it. Uh, so that sounds like a great And it idea. goes all the way back to the simple uh, storyline that if you really want to do stuff well, you can't bring the scientist perspective in too late. No. And all of a sudden now it goes, you, you can extrapolate yeah. on that problem all the way up to the board. Yes, I think so. Uh, I think so too. And it's, it, I mean, it's uh, just the sheer sort of time that we need to explain stuff, you know, even yeah. when we have very uh, sympathetic, uh, sort of yeah, supervisors oh. so we, we, we don't really get anywhere it's, but, I, we, but let's let's take it after after work but I mean like there are so many uh, facets of this problem another you know you go to the board level okay you have your five slides and 15 minutes uh, yeah, exactly. and and how do you deal with super complex yeah. topics yeah you know you're dumbing it down until yeah. there's nothing left yeah and, uh, and I also think that Data science in general, not only uh, artificial intelligence, but it's um, it's here to stay, basically. So mm. we need to have an understanding of that also in management, top management level. Certainly agree. Luva, it's been a true pleasure to have you here. Same. And uh, looking forward to continued discussion. Hope you can stay yes. on for some time at least. Mm. Um, so thank you very much for coming to the podcast. Thank you, guys. It's been great.